This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman. And Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, and we are back. Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod, uh, at artofdarkpod. I think that's I think that's all of them. Um, uh, we are back after uh, shortly after our epic uh, six-hour Aleister Crowley episode. So uh, check that out if you haven't already. But we are talking you about... You with that wilt, she'll be the whole of the pod. <laughs> yeah, six, yeah, six hours. So, <laughs> so we've recovered from that, more or less. Um, and we are back now talking about somebody else... Uh, who's kind of in the same milieu sometimes, as we're going to see. This is uh, the great writer and, quote, sexual adventurer, Anna Isnin. Uh, uh, and I'm pronouncing that right because I had to go look to see how she pronounced it. Um, but before uh, we get too deep into that, um, I want to in, uh, introduce our guest. Uh, you guys are probably already familiar with him. Um, this is the great Gio Penichetti. Um, of uh, all kinds of things, right? Uh, um, uh, host of Content Minded Corner, um, omnipresent internet figure, artist, writer, gonzo philosopher, union futurist. Uh, what am I missing? Anything, Gio? Um, failed academic. Ah, yes. That's what oh, I put that, in makes, that makes three of us. That makes three of us. This is why we're doing this, uh, man. It's a post-academic podcast. This is for <laughs> all of us who got booted. So, so you're in good company. Uh, Welcome to the pod, Gio. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Oh, yeah. It's been great, great. man. It's been a long time coming. You you said you wanted to do, um, you had a list of people you wanted to do an episode for. Then I saw an ISD and I'm like, yes, let's do that one. That's, let's just totally, let's, you know, (laughs) oh, man. It's, (laughs) I can't even describe it. Um, No, yeah. I I read House of Incest many years ago. And um, I, it's, it's in my research, especially with content mining, especially the, um, various stuff I do with Catherine D. It always comes up about the whole like um, mommy GF thing and, and the mm-hmm. internet and how um, the sort of like internet pornography especially warps people's preferences. But in it's very interesting in that, um, like I was saying to you guys, I feel like she's the model of what our good my good friend Zurich B. Lovecraft calls uh, the mo- the new femininity. Yeah. So I feel like. From a you know a right wing perspective, she is very important to study for maybe not for the way that MFA graduates study yeah, her, interesting. but <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right, all I'm right. glad to give you here, bro, boys. It's it's a long time coming. So. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a while, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, we, I think we started talking about this like six months ago. But that's mm-hmm. how the show works, man. Stuff takes a long time. I've been reading nothing but Nin for the last month. So yeah, um, wait, wait, wait. I don't know anything about. Yeah, An- Anna is Nin or not? This is what Nin. I'm just about how, to ask you. H- house of what? Kevin. <laughs> what? Yeah, Kevin. Before we say anything else, Kevin, we'll start with our question. Kevin, what do you know about Anna is Nin? 
I don't know even know how to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna is Nin. Uh, I really hardly know anything. I know she's okay. a writer. This is one. This is a really gaping hole, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> in my uh, my cultural education. Everyone has these, and and yeah. one of the things about this show, I try to be honest, and I don't try to pose as someone who knows all and everything. And so mm-hmm. I've been looking forward to this uh, because I like to think I have a pretty pretty comprehensive you know education but then again i was i was educated in public schools right. all the way through so in any event i know next to nothing i would um, i guess she's an american i i think uh and you've been american right mm-hmm. we'll get into it okay. yeah, yeah we'll get all right into it. Yeah. yeah yeah and and uh a stylist of prose. That's really the beginning and the end of what I know. I I, I kind of place her in the mid century of the twentieth century. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, I'm I'm ignorant and uh, I fully expect to be bent over and schooled. Excellent. Uh, during this episode. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, all right. Well, she then. certainly was bent over. Oh, <laughs> was, hey. oh, <laughs> oh okay. Get rid of the, okay. the, the low right. brow yeah. jokes. First. No, no, that's all right. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> we aim for the middle, and it means sometimes we're high, sometimes we're low. Mm-hmm. Well, she definitely was the mid castiza of her day. So that's I think that's, probably, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. We're going we're gonna to find out, aren't we? Rock yeah, and roll. So- all right, so let me just jump into it. So, well, Brad, before uh, we do, what are yeah. you gotta tease the Patreon oh. after dark? Uh, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We're shooting for 333 Patreon subscribers by the end of 2023. Mm. We're starting to do numbers. So, what are every episode gets an extra 20, 30, sometimes more minutes? Uh, so, what are we gonna do on After Dark today, Brad? Yeah, this is something that we're gonna we're gonna gloss over as is necessary in the normal show, but we're gonna go into more detail in the After Dark, and that is. The time when adult Nin stooped her dad yeah. on purpose. What? Yeah. 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 No. It's real. Yeah. So wow. I don't want to say much more about it, but we're going to get into that. And we've got, okay. we've got some stuff I'm, to say about it. And if you have going, enough money, go mm-hmm. to patreon.com slash Johnny Productions as well. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. Yes. 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 So please yes. go to Art of Darkness, yeah. patreon.com slash Art of Darkness. These, these boys are doing quality, quality stuff. Um, I think that literature, I mean, I'm not a big literary man myself. I'm much more in the visual arts, but mm-hmm. I feel like what you two are doing is valuable and niche. And usually that translates into a loyal fan base when you are valuable and niche. So yeah. there you go. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. to think we're building a loyal fan base. I think mm-hmm. we are. Yeah. 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 A little bit at a time. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, all right. So just kind of preliminary stuff. Angela, Anais, Yuna, Antelina, Rosa, Edelmira, Nin, E. Kumel. That is the full name of our subject. On that's uh, an entire Scrabble bag, bag of Scrabble <laughs> tiles, right there. It really is gracious. Um, yeah, and her her child, like those long lists of names, that will reflect throughout her life in terms of. Uh, less than stellar upbringings, but yes. we'll, we'll yeah, 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 for right. sure. But I just think it's it's you know it's a half a dozen names, seven seven names, eight names, um, which is just fantastic. I love it. So she's a she's a French born. She is described as a French born American diarist, but she was French born to Cuban parents, right? So you know you got you're talking somebody who literally is sort of practically homeless in the grander sense, right? Never, you can imagine, your Cuban parents 
you grow up, you're born in France, you grow up in France, you live in the United States, you know, she's all over the place. And we're going to get into more of the details. Yeah, Back that's in, very important as well. Yeah. Like the, the displacement of herself. Well, you go, sorry, no, I keep right. interrupting. No, this, not uh, at all, not at all, man. I was yeah, also so, going to make a joke about how they're the most erotic of races as well, but that's, yeah. you know, French Cuban. <laughs> that, that <laughs> if she was be, Italian, I mean, my God, she'd that. be even worse, but yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. So I want to get into a little bit of family background because I think you start to see you start to see her kind of being assembled out of her out of her family history. Um, and remember, she's I want to I want to we, we, we got to just establish, I guess, two things off the bat. Her sex life is going to be more a part of this story than maybe any other subject we've ever covered. It's necessary. It's part of it's it's integral to the Nin story. E- even more than Crowley. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah. Crowley might have done more numbers, uh, maybe, <laughs> but uh, it's it's yeah, uh. it's, it's, it's more than half the story. It's at least half the story, wouldn't it? Um, but she's also, you know, she's also a writer. She's a powerful writer. And we're going to we're going to see that. OK, so talking a little bit about her pa- background, I'll start kind of with her mother, <clears throat> Rosa uh, Kumel E. Varagod. And I'm going to probably mispronounce something like that, but. She's born in 1871. Nin, our Nin, is born in 1903. Mother's born in 1871. She's the oldest of five daughters uh, and four brothers. Um, and her parents were rich, uh, were a rich Danish merchant and a French Cuban woman, right? So again, another whole anomaly, this whole Danish uh, part of her part of her background. Um uh her her grandfather, her uh um sorry. Nin's father was uh, born in 1879. Joaquin is his name. He's a poor musician, descendant of minor Spanish nobility, right? So she's got this money in the background, this nobility in the in the in the in the past, um, and we'll see how that kind of ends up playing out. Now, Nin's maternal grandfather was this very kind of adventurous businessman, this Danish Danish merchant, but her um, Nin's grand uncle, so um, her grandfather's brother, uh, made a fortune supplying slaves to cuban sugar plantations <laughs> so that's we've got that in the background <laughs> as well um now this Ba-ba-ba-ba-be. is no 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 i'm not making that joke no no <laughs> no uh uh nin's uh, nin's grandfather kind of distanced himself from this but it's kind of i mean we've got a slave trader in the family um uh Nin's grandmother on her on her mother's side gave birth to nine children and then was thrown out of the house for possibly having a romantic relationship with some other man. So her grandmother, her maternal grandmother, abandoned her children um, and just lived a life doing as she pleased. So so that's not even on the Nin side. That's on the Kumel side. But the Nin side is just as much like this. <laughs> um, uh Keeping up with Rosa, Nin's mother, she's very, ends up being very well educated, right? She's the son. She's the child of this rich Danish merchant. She's uh, educated on Long Island and in France. Finest finishing and in the finest finishing schools in Havana. So again, a very cosmopolitan woman, right? Um, and what those that kind of education then was for that class, her class was really to make you into an excellent wife. That was the whole point of that educational system is make you cultured and refined, right? And, and manners and etiquette and all of these kinds of things. Um, however, it kind of backfired with Nin's mother because 
all of this international travel and things makes her independent and self-sufficient. So she is cultured and refined, but she doesn't necessarily make a great wife because she's seen the world, right? She's 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 kind of she's a badass in her own right. So that ends up kind of causing problems. Now, what's that? What's that line from Lebowski? It's hard to keep them down on the farm after they've met Carl Hungus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little exactly. bit of that. Yeah. She's a rootless. Yeah. She's a rootless cosmopolitan. She, she literally a... is a rootless cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, it's, and, it's... and throughout her work, the the one persistent theme to get into it, I guess, would be that domesticity is her number one enemy, um, and she always goes back to the theme of. Well, when we get into erotica, we'll see that the women is fully liberated. But when it comes to her personal essays in her own voice, domesticity is like this thing that women are awakening from. So, for example, in her essay, um, what's it called? On Truth and Reality, she says the first one, uh, each cycle was different, was a different drama. So I think she was referring to Trist with Henry Miller, which we'll get into of keeping her diary each cycle was different drama the first was one of relation to the missing father the second cycle was the relation to the mother from which i took the concept of female sacrifice the third mm. was the um the assertion of my own creative will a final synthesizing analysis by a woman finally brought me to a harmony among all the paths of myself but it was only that the diaries were published uh that became entirely free of guilt and then of course she talks about the role of women in domestic life being that of essentially eternal sacrifice without reward. So as a woman, I'm fully aware that my personal world was the source of my strength and my psychic energy. The creation of a perfect personal world was the root of my inspiration. So women's concerned with not just losing the center, which she knows the value of. So in, in other words, the, the biggest theme is about her trying to travel and there's different selves and different sides to myself. And uh, she really is the first uh, BPDE girl in, the, in that sense that <laughs> she takes on these different vestas of self. But we'll, I'll get into it with more of an academic paper. But yeah. this is the theme, the domesticity and mm -hmm. crushing that domesticity is one of the persistent themes in both her novels, her erotica, and the way that she depicts men in her erotica, mm -hmm. which we'll get into. But keep in mind, like you said, Brad, that... This is a linchpin of her existence is the fact that she is essentially a rootless, cosm rootless cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry no, to that's, that no not at all. That's uh, that's that was perfect. And that's that's <laughs> that's exactly right. And we see you're talking about it in her writing. We see it. We'll see it in her life, too. The different oh, yeah. ways that it manifests so. in her different yeah. living situations. Right. Um, it definitely yeah. is definitely a, a constant, a constant running issue that she is she's working through. Um. And and the, that's one thing too. The the boundaries between her writing and her life are mm -hmm. blurry at best. Well, especially um, when she talks about that one province in Spain or Morocco, I believe. Mm -hmm. Was it Tunisia? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, talk about her father a little bit. Um, uh, her father was born in Cuba to a Spanish cavalry officer and his Cuban wife. Right. So, um. Now, he moved back. They moved back to Spain. But apparently at this time, if you were born in Cuba, it was basically a sign of sort of being low born. Right. Even if you're from Spanish people, you born in Cuba, it means you're you means you're kind of dirty. Right. And so he's kind of stayed in Spain trying to wear this off, um, trying to become not a Cuban. Um, and it part, partly how he did this was he becomes a snob. 
He's interested in the finest of fine things, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Nobody does this today. Right. Nobody leaves uh, the Midwest <laughs> and lands in L.A. or New York or London and right. becomes Starts throwing money around. Yeah. Well, yeah. right. It makes yeah. TikToks yeah. about going to different cafes. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Now he was, to his credit, he was a talented uh, piano player. I mean, of course, he thought that he was an absolute genius, but he was he was apparently quite talented and would make a living at it at certain times in his life. Um, he ends up leaving Spain after he tries to seduce a young woman and the woman's father threatens to horsewhip him. So instead of standing around and like, you know, standing up for himself or, you know, fighting to have this woman, he just bounces. Uh, <laughs> that is exactly the kind of energy we need to bring back these days. I tell you what. Return um, so, to oh, horsewhip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm. he so he bounces to Cuba where he still has some family and he, you know, he kind of plays sheet music and music stores to make money, um, tries to put on concerts and whatnot. And then he meets Nin's mother, Rosa. Um, he's immediately disapproved of by Rosa's father. Um, and yet eventually, like Rosa through like, you know, a declaration of love and really pushing for it. Eventually, they they end up, uh, you know, it, it ends up working out and they get married. Um they decide to Rosa is also a bit of a singer. So they, they literally, they have a concert and then they get married a concert together and then they get married six days later. And then Rosa's father pays for both of them to move to France, um, offers to buy a, a, a piano for Joaquin and then also offers to, um, put them up and pay for their living until Joaquin can get on his feet. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, as a musician, he's not like going to be a he's not a doctor or a <laughs> or something. He's he's a guy who plays piano who's going to show up in France where he has no connections and he's going to try to make a living as a musician. Um, trying to keep up with their his career, the family ends up moving around a bunch. Um, they moved to Berlin and then Brussels before Nin turns nine. So she's born in France in 1903, shortly after they move there, and. It, again, Berlin and then Brussels by the time she's nine years old. Um, and then by the time they get to uh, Brussels, she's got two little brothers. Now, Nin is a dark-eyed, dark-haired, dark-complexioned, um, you know, she's got the, that Spanish-Cuban element. Um, and her brothers end up being little blonde, blue-eyed boys. <laughs> so even within the family, there's like this she sort of stands out. She sort of doesn't belong within her own family in a way. She doesn't look like anybody else in the family. Um, and in fact, over time, as she gets older, she would speak and write in French and the brothers would speak and write in Spanish. So the little blonde, blonde, blue eyed boys speak Spanish. She, who kind of looks Spanish, speaks French. Uh, just very, just a very strange kind of situation. She's speaking French, French in Berlin, right? So it's it's very difficult for Nin to find a home, I guess you could say, right? Um, couple other little notes. Now, Joaquin's career does not go well, and because it doesn't go well, he uh, starts to take it out on the children. And now, here's where I'm going to read my first little bit from the biography. Um, this is a great biography by. Um, this is this is a banger of a biography by Deirdre Bear, just called. And it's Nin a biography, but it's sort of the definitive, the definitive one. Now, there is since Nin is, you know, maybe the most famous of all diarists, there is no end to Nin writing about her own life. Mm -hmm. The trick to that is it's not always, quote unquote, true. 
It's literary. It's yeah, literary. It's literary right? Yeah. So, I can't think of a, another who would be another diarist that would be on her, on her level, like the amount, just the volume. I I, I'm not sure there is anybody, you know. Um, yeah. Um, though she had somebody later, you know, she had she made a lot of enemies. She made a lot of friends too, but she made a lot of enemies. One of her sort of enemies would later in life refer to it as her liary. Um, because, <laughs> which I which I quite like, <laughs> just because it's like it is. It's 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 self. It's often self-aggrandizing. It's we're going to get more into the diaries, but it's some of it is the most self-indulgent thing you can imagine. I it's remember one like, one Goodreads reviewer said that basically her diary consists of like stating how important she is to everyone's life around yep, her. Yep, so yep, that's yep. like a good. Yeah. 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 yeah but then yeah. something like World War Two happens and it like doesn't get mentioned like huge <laughs> historical events happen around her and like it never shows up. Tip- I hate I'm, to say a yeah. typical woman. Oh, World politics, her own autistic interest in something doesn't matter. But my own immediate life now. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. But maybe, right. unless, but maybe. She's, uh, it sounds like she's in, okay, quick, walk it back. She's, uh, she sounds like she's, uh, in, uh, what's the name of your podcast, Gio? Where can people find you? Um, content minded, yeah. Content minded. Go talk to her. Um, no, she sounds like a person who's kind of. Oh, you mean the other lit- one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. No, no, no. Like, like an Escher. She's like in her own. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah. Yeah. House of Mirrors kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And she kind of refers to this, and the best way that I could describe it, she will refer to this thing that she calls like the dream or living in the dream. And it is this sort of like self constructed realm inside of her head that where things in the real world do pass into it, but they get distorted once they're in there and things from in there pass out into the real world. It's a very, it's like a, mm-hmm. it is like an Escher labyrinth inside of her head that she really is where she actually lives. Right. Um, and you know, there's rootless co- cosmopolitan. Where does she find home inside of her own head? I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain logic to that, I suppose. It Millions was, must die. It does not concern me. <laughs> Millions dying does not concern me. Oh, yeah. And the Great Depression, <laughs> the Great Depression, she does refer to like things being hard now, but like there's no connection to like to like it being part of a polit- like a thing that's happening. Right. It's just like, oh, Hugo's not making money anymore. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's um, oh. we're, we're talk a little bit about. So what I was saying was when she's a child. Joaquin, the father, starts to abuse the children primarily because his career is not going well. He's a bit of a boozer, too. So, um, you know, he's a hot, he's 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 a sort of a passionate guy. He expects the finer things. He thinks he's a genius. Things are not going well. And he's got a bunch of annoying children running around who he may not even have wanted, to be honest. So um, here we go. Here's from the Bear biography. Joaquin was fond of spanking. Usually he withdrew in silence from the ordinary daily life of his family, closeting himself in his study or hiding behind a book at mealtime. The children behaved normally, if a bit more quietly, during such moods. It was only when they heard the start of a venomous criticism of their mother and themselves that they tried to creep out of sight. Unfortunately, his snide comments and vitriolic outbursts usually caused the strong-willed Rosa, Nin's mom, to retaliate with equal intensity. This provoked him to exert his control over the threshold by locking the children in their bedrooms and beating her. When he realized how indomitable her spirit was, he devised a more extreme form of cruelty, locking up Rosa first, then walloping the three children so that her frantic screams intermingled with and punctuated their cries. Joaquin made the children march up to the dark and frightening attic, 
paddling them as they mounted the stairs with a hairbrush, a cane, or the flat of his hand. All right, it wasn't long before this abuse turned into sexual abuse of men. All right, so here's... I, I, I'm just going to I'm gonna stop you here. We've done, I don't know how many core episodes now, well into the 30s. We've covered 30 artists at this point. We're getting ready to go into season three, 2023. The trailer's on the website. Brad did a bang-up job with that. We track, there is a through line to Art of Darkness. Uh, and it's not just glib jokes. We're we're looking at artists and we're looking at history. It's an, it's really an arts history podcast. Yeah. Uh, and it just it I'm just reminded now how common this this was. This was more the norm than not. Oh yeah. Until yeah, yeah. recently yeah. across cultures. Yeah. And yeah, like I, our parents generation, I, most of them got beaten to some corporal. degree. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Just yeah. worth worth thinking about. Yeah. 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 Not yeah. that's not to just I mean, I'm not justifying no, it, it's it, just, it's just that's a fact. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's just a fact. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, like I said, eventually this vi- this abuse turns into sexual abuse of Nin. Now, it's tricky. Well, we're going to get into it, right? We're going to talk more about how the, the long-term um, implications of this are in the after dark. But we're going to talk about, you know, the childhood part right now. And this is Nin talking um, in her diary. My father has taken me up to the little attic room to spank me. He takes my pants off. He begins to hit me with the palm of his hand. I feel his hand on me, but he stops hitting me and he caresses me. Then he sticks his penis into me, pretending to be beating me. Oh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. In and out. In and out. With my ass exposed, my pants down, he takes me from behind, but my mother is coming up the stairs. We have no time. I clutch at him, palpitating. Oh, oh, my mother is coming up the stairs. My father's hands are on my ass. Hot. I'm wet. I'm eager, eager. Open, close, open, close. I must feel him all before she comes. I must shoot quickly. Uh, I only remember with sureness a time I wept so much he didn't have the courage to beat me. So, whoa, roll credits. Whoa, let me just slowly back away here. I think I had known about this. It might have been one of the reasons I repressed any knowledge of her. Yeah, Uh, I I started reading that and I kind of didn't want to read the rest of that excerpt. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And here's the thing. So that's happening, according to Nin, and probably was actually happening. Um, And then at the same time, Joaquin would be verbally abusive to her. He called her like the ugly duckling kind of thing because she was a little weird. She mm-hmm. she looked unusual in the family and she was kind of sickly also. So she would get called like the ugly ducking, duckling, the ugly one and that sort of thing. Being sickly um, in childhood is a very common theme with all literary people. Oh, it really like, is. Uh, Nietzsche, yeah. come on. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that Edward, well my co- favorite painter, Edward Monk. Come on, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Kevin, you go. Not at all. No, I didn't know about Monk. Uh, but yeah, this is a recurring. This is one of those. We're we're thinking at some point. Uh, it's a bit of a joke, but we're going to have to make an Art of Darkness bingo card uh, <laughs> yeah. because yeah. there are yeah. these recurring themes, and and childhood illness is is very common. Have it's you a- done an Edward Monk episode? No, no, no. But it well, seems like a giant, that could be a giant year return right there. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, uh, okay. I like maybe that. I like that. <laughs> maybe season four. I like it. Good. We're, we got you. We got you know, Brad. I got to tell you. I got to remind you, man. This is art of darkness. You got to try to find the dark stuff here, man. I don't yeah. Know well, yeah. I know. I'm looking. I'm looking. Unfortunately, <laughs> can't nothing. find it anywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I yeah. think. But a serious point, I think, would be um, 
when it comes to her childhood experience. And I believe Joaquin leaves after, right? Like when she's nine years old. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So abandonment comes out over and over again. But we'll get to that when we talk mm-hmm. about Joaquin. But in terms of her literary output, there was this one story within her two volumes of erotica, um, the one being Delta Venus, which I think is the superior one. Also, mm-hmm. the title as well. Something about it just seems so. Yeah. Oh, she's got good titles. She's got good oh, yeah. titles for the oh, most yeah. part. Yeah. Something yeah. about it, like Delta Venus, right? Like it. um, but yeah. It's erotic, but it's Apollonia, the same. T- so, mm-hmm. oh, there you go. That's the point. Her eroticism could be sort of a feminine Apollonianism in that mm-hmm. it's very calculated. It's very sensual at sometimes, but it's more of when we get to her description of generally the men that she depicts. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get into it. But the one I wanted to bring up was called the the Hungarian or what is it called? The Hungry or Hungarian Adventure. A Hungarian um, adventure. Hungarian yeah. adventure. Yes, that one, and that later inspires Mathilda. Matilda. Mm-hmm. I know it's Matilda, but it's like the way it's spelled, right? With, the, with um, an H, yeah. Which I, I I'll bring up later as okay. probably one of her most significant short stories. But oh, cool, in good. The Hungarian adventure. The the theme of child abuse comes up. Uh, can we say the word the p word? Yeah. Um, why not? Yeah. Fun, okay, there you go. Yeah, because yeah, usually yeah. I say cheese pizza because I'm on YouTube as well. So it's like, you know, I can't say it. Um, but <laughs> pedophilia comes How, up where you know, go ahead. Yeah. Get, what are we gonna How are we gonna cover Burroughs or right, right. Ginsburg? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not when yeah. Ginsburg is a part of Nambla. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah, totally. And you can still buy Howl at Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Along exactly. with your right yeah. next to Harry Potter. So I don't know what that is, but yeah. Oh anyway. god, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's it's funny because um, in 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 the Hungarian adventure, essentially he's kind of like Joaquin, a man pinned down by his family, mm-hmm. but is consumed by an um like a, a rapacious eroticism that leads into pedophilic acts through its veracity and its never ending. Uh, nature and yeah it's I like think, an appetite that's so big that it has yeah. to come to that at some point yeah, yeah. and then yeah. it's an appetite that becomes an ergogor that influences other pe- uh, other people right. including Mathilda in the story but there's this one scene where basically he diddles his family and he moves on from his wife to his kids and it really just um but I think that the one thing with Nin is that she was really the first to put into paper in her diaries the sort of very disturbing reality of a lot of child abuse victims where especially women they do feel some sense of identification and satisfaction because they cannot in in their very shattered world um and i know this is pop psychology 101 but like in their very shattered world they cannot equate the difference between a genuine and healthy eroticism and abuse that becomes Mm -hmm. one and the same so Mm -hmm. her saying that she sought out her father and the pleasure of being beaten and, and her exposed ass and getting wet. It's like, that is classic. I mean, it's, it does come off as like, for you know, French new extreme disorder right, type of stuff, right. but it's, I think it's important as just a character study into the mind of a lot of those unspoken things with abuse victims, especially yeah. female abuse victims. But, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's like, that's the perspective at it then, but like the, the, deep damage that does to the development of a healthy development of a psyche is like that's not what she's she's not aware Mm -hmm. of that at that moment right yeah it's dark um so something else happens when she's about nine years old um 1912 which is this the sexual abuse stuff is happening she also has a, a burst appendicitis 
a burst appendix, right? And this is in this time, 1912 or whatever, you that you die from that usually. Usually that's a terminal thing. If it actually bursts, you're dead. Um, she manages to live, but she's in the hospital for three months straight. And all this time that her father had been sort of sort of spitting vitriol at her, beating her, sexually abusing her, he automatically he he becomes incredibly tender towards her. Right. So he's showering her with love because she's he think he he honestly thinks she's gonna die. Both of her parents think that she's gonna die. And it's so bad, she gets so sick that throughout her life, she would think that her surviving it was some kind of miraculous anointment, right? It was like, I was chosen somehow by this. That's why I survived, right? Because it was that, it got that serious. Um, and so she, and then she has this, she sees, she's able to see that there's this tremendous tenderness in her father, but it only comes out in this certain time, this certain moment, right? So now it's something that you can pursue is that thing is in there, right? But the he next- sounds year, like, hang on, he sounds like a ahead. classic- narcissist oh he's an absolute narcissist yeah yeah for <laughs> sure i mean i don't you know you don't know if he got diagnosed but but he's got every sure. literally every yeah. sign of it yeah okay um wow. the next year 1913 he's um he's again trying to pursue his career interest he gets he gets some kind of concert situation lined up and he ends up moving to um Arcachon on the atlantic coast of france and they're put up by the owner of the romeo and julieta cigar company um and oh those are the yeah. i smoked those cigarillos oh yeah oh, okay okay oh yeah. i might i uh, might stop now <laughs> no that's fine i mean they didn't, do, I'm, they didn't i'm gonna i'm gonna change my yeah. brand i don't know if i approve <laughs> but i'm just i'm just kidding romeo and Juliet yeah. is canceled <laughs> um they uh now now here's the thing they have a there's a young there's a not young she's like i think 16 or 17 years old she's 16 years old daughter to the romeo and juliet the people and joaquin sees her and is transfixed and has to be with her and so he ends up abandoning the nin and, and rosa and the whole family to be with this young very young woman right um he disappears and he writes them a letter i'm gonna i'm gonna read this little bit um yeah um no one heard from joaquin until a month after he left and then it was rosa to whom he sent a cold perfunctory letter saying he had removed everything of value from the uncle house that's where they were staying in archicon and that his abandonment was permanent he avoided any mention of divorce and advised her to go to barcelona and live with his parents Although he would not provide financial support, he would, he said, write from time to time, instructing her on how to bring up the children. Right. So, like, could you imagine, like, writing that letter, disappearing, middle of the night, writing that letter? Listen, you go stay with my parents who you don't really know and who don't really like you. Um, I'm not going to help out in any way, but I will occasionally check in with you to make sure you're raising the children the way that I think you should. Yeah. Like just the just a complete narcissist. And by the way, I've run off with a 16-year-old girl. So, you know, you deal with it. <laughs> but notice how the the sort of psychological and, and, and not to psychologize, because I think to psychologize, I mean, there's always limitations to it. Mm -hmm. But it's important when it comes to Aniastim because her work of art is herself in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So unlike um in in similar way, I would think Monk would be, because here's what the connection here. So you have the various extremes in childhood of abandonment. Well, sorry, no, no, before that. Sickliness, being considered the ugly duckling, but seeking sexual approval from her father as well. So you have the sort of archetypal connection between the masculine 
which is derelict, mm-hmm. which is um, burdensome, but at the same time standoffish and cold. So you have this constant need for approval, but the sexual element of it intensifies it. But also you have, uh, and this is why I think it's studying the fem, you know, th- th- this is, I know it's going to be a joke, but yeah. studying the fem cell is very important because a lot of, this is why I think Anais Nin is very popular among uh, aging millennial MFA grads because mm-hmm. the fem cell has a lot of similar characteristics of at one point being considered not conventionally attractive, but then taking on a sexuality, which is a hypersexualization of life, but also then later in life being abandoned by that fatherly figure, that source of meaning. And then this awakens an Iaston to then become this, like, I'm a powerful woman. I don't need no man. Um, the men in my life are basically playthings for my own sexual id. And so it's a very consuming electric complex. It is a feminine energy, is a sexual feminine eroticism that is very distinct and different from what has been portrayed throughout literature and art and history. Um, and so Edvard Monk would be the incel um, tag team to that because of him experiencing sickliness in his youth. But even just to read from her, this is, um, I believe she wrote this in the seventies or, or no, actually maybe in the eighties. Um, this is the first essay from uh, in favor of sensitive men and other essays. This is eroticism in women. Uh, this quote in particular, where is it here? Um, she talks about the Kama Sutra and in the role of women and how a woman's eroticism is uniquely tied to their environment, unlike men's. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's teased out. It's it's very central. So this is where she's talking about her critic. How she wrote about how they thought my book with they thought my diary with Henry Middle was pornographic. How dare they? Um, you know, um, she, so, <laughs> what are you are you doing, Minnie Mouse? There? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Well, she probably. Okay. Um, yeah. So she this had is a from... Minnie Mouse voice, but with a French oh, accent. Oh, did she? So. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay. So right. um, another passage from Spy, he caresses her so delicately. They're almost like teasing an advancement challenge, which she fears to respond to. It might vanish. Uh, her fingers teased her and withheld as they had aroused her. Her mouth teased her and then eluded her. So a lot of her erotica, as we'll get into, is about the permeation of the body in, in the erotic experience. But this is the quote. Um, and of course, he despises Marlon Brando for making Last Tango in Paris, which is one of the most based in red pilled, curmudgeon, uh, borderline sexual abuse films has oh, ever yeah. been put to celluloid. Um, so she lay unco- um, unconscious of the wild little cries of the utter lash. She felt the soft butt of him with her staring. Then she talks about it was disillusionment in our modern times to discover that women courting each other did not necessarily adopt more sensuous, more subtle ways of winning desire, but proceeded with the same aggressive direct attack as men. So as much as she is a feminist icon, she does realize that female sexuality is of a caliber different than, what does my good friend Catherine call it, Um, 90s, sorry, 2000s, 2010 sexual, um, you know, sex posy girl bossism, of course. Mm -hmm. This is, but she's the development though, the girl (laughs) boss. So personally, this is why I believe the brutal language says Marla Brando uses the last tango in Paris. Far more affecting women repulses her. It disparages, vulgarizes sexuality, expresses only how the Puritan saw it as low, evil, and dirty. It is a reflection of Puritanism. It does not arouse desire. It bestializes sexuality. I find most women object to that as a destruction of eroticism. Among ourselves, we have made the distinction between pornography and eroticism. Pornography treats sexual gro- sexuality grotesquely to bring it back to the animal level. Eroticism arouses sensuality with this need to animalize it. So, of course, she's 
you know, basically talking about this sort of like, you know, um, eroticism for her is integrating the feminine into something that is um, sensuality is something that is a higher act. But unfortunately, I think throughout her life, she also demonstrates that uh, personally, you know, sexuality to her became a bestial thing. It became mm. sort of having a power over men. And this unconsciously comes out in her eroticism where it's about capturing that power over other men and the way that she depicts men as being, uh, you know, weaker and dependent and effeminate yeah. and soy jackish, um, yeah. you know. She and yeah, she would get some grief or we'll get to it she would get some grief yeah. from the feminist movement at one point in the 60s 70s where like she was initially yeah. celebrated and then there was like a, a rereading of her at some point they're like wait wait a second you're just a terrible person yeah, <laughs> like, we, yeah. We, hold yeah. on <laughs> hold on did you read page 37 because she you know it was like <laughs> it was like they, they they took a second look at her like oh man maybe we maybe you're not on our side really and, and, but to go into that, this is what she says. Men often physically present, mentally preoccupied, men lead by, led by their ambitions. Women, is more, women are more capable sorry, of turning away from her work to give full attention to, to a weary husband and a child's scratched finger. If a woman had witnessed the father going away because of his work, they will retain anxiety about their own going away to meeting conferences, lectures. So again, about this is basically mm -hmm. a jab at her father. For the new yeah. woman and new man, I highlighted those new woman, a new man, the art of connecting and relating separate interests will be a challenge. But then of course she says it's striking that women, uh, that women are out breaking away and separating carries with it an aura of loss as if a symbolic umbilical cord still affected all of her emotional life. So she's talking about the new womanhood breaking away from those quote unquote patriarchal norms. And she's writing this at the, basically at the height of the second wave. Um, and she's talking about how, in a woman's pursuit of uh, subjectivity, there still is those sort of um, lingering connections that leads to a preoccupation with loss. And of course, she has a very derelict and cavalier view of family life. I mean, mm -hmm. when we get to her abortion, that's probably, yeah, I could read a yeah, passage yeah. from that as well. No, we're going to talk about that. So sure. dad went out for cigarettes and never yes. came back. Never came back. Essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But this goes into the loss of that basically carried throughout her whole life. And the fact that she did treat men like basically sex objects. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, we're gonna and we're gonna get we're gonna talk about the levels to that, how deep that I gets. got I got one thing to say about that. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, man. nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah, well hold on. Wait till you see who was footing who was foot in the bill. So hold ah, on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So All right. um not long after so the the family yeah dad goes out he tells him to move to uh and, and stay with his family and they do that for a little while until Rosa can't hack it anymore she decides that she's going to go to New York take the children with her she's got some of her sisters there who have um who are doing pretty well for themselves they still have the you know the the Danish merchant uh family money she's going to go to New York now on the trip to New York is when the diary Nins starts writing her diary later on in life. Go ahead, Kevin. Put me in time. What year are we? Oh yeah, we are in uh, 1913. Oh 1913. sorry, 1914. 1914. So very similar to the the time that Crowley was over in New York. Interestingly, yeah, I'm yeah, just trying yeah, to they, place yeah. her in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Eh? I wonder. That's probably yeah. <laughs> well. Her view. Her view of sexuality, I think, does lead to a Crowleyan. Um, yeah. element. I mean, you know, it's funny. I had a very negative experience with the Lemites. Uh, when I was on follow the rules, uh, as yeah. a, that's a joke, follow the rules, break the rules. Um, <laughs> we had a, we had a Crowley stream and it was with this woman who's this airhead TikToker. That's a plagiarist. I basically got her book mm. deal hacked 
oh, cut boy. to pieces because of plagiarism. And she sent her, she attacked us, you know, because we were talking about <laughs> the occult. And, uh, you know, never trust Carlites. But but here's what I mean, though. So as much as I do appreciate Anais Nin for her open view of eroticism, you do have to realize that, you know, the sexy in vogue politics of sexual liberation at this time. So this is at the end of eroticism in women. The true liberation of eroticism lies in accepting the fact that there are millions facets to it, a million forms of eroticism, a million objects to it, situations, atmospheres, and variations. We have, first of all, to dispense with guilt and guilty consciousness, um, uh, cementing its expansion, then remain open to its surprises, varied expressions, and to add my personal formula for full enjoyment of it. Of course, adding your personal formula to it. Fuse it with individual love and passion for a particular human being. Mingle it with dreams, fantasies, and emotions. And of course, House of Incest is all about that, her, her prose work. But I think that as much as I agree with that sentiment, I think that that sentiment nowadays in the hands of uh, academics and you know the post-Tumblr crowd and those people with uh, flags and pronouns in the bio um, on Twitter, that this is sort of a very destructive notion because yes, it is true. There are a variety and flourishings of, of eroticism that are situatedness. But nowadays, there's so much of a focus on fetishism becoming identity that she really is, in some ways, the precursor to that fetishism becoming mm. an identity. So, but I don't, she doesn't mean it that way. But I'm saying that in the hands of people nowadays that it gets are flattened, it gets squashed, yeah, it gets like, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. But she's agreed. very right, though. There's many forms of eroticism, there's many expressions to it. Mm -hmm. That's not an inherently bad thing. I mean, of course, no, I'm I'm a base trad, um, <laughs> you know, return to tradition, yeah. missionary, only, mission, missionary for procreative purposes only. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Yeah, for sure. Not not naturally November. Not naturally We're bringing November. It back. Not there naturally November. Cream pie or die. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no birth control. Never. <laughs> not even once. I said that so many times. On like I do the show with Prudentialist uh, Digital mm. Archipelago. And we were talking about um, that one tweet that our good friend Starbard made where I think it was when Bader Ginsburg died. Or no, no, it was the overturning of Roe. He's like, you know, anime girls would never even think of having an abortion. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. Anime girls are returned to tradition. I mean, Inaya right. Nin would be so <laughs> against anime. It'd be, it would be incredible. She would say that anime is male fetishism through and through. Um, ah. Oh, yeah, she definitely would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, where, where are we going? We're trying to be serious, literary, yeah. men of yeah. no. We're talking about... This is great. <laughs> this is uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, I'm, right. I'm enjoying this, yeah. All right, I'm going to get us I'm gonna get us back on the bio for back a little bit. Right, back, back on track, back on the bio. Back on the right. train. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so she's going... She's, she's on the boat to New York, and this is when the diary starts now. The diary actually starts as a letter to her father. That's how it begins. She wants to write a letter to her father, never gets sensed, and it sort of transmogrifies into this diary that she's going to carry with her everywhere throughout her life. Basically, her life happens as much in the diary as it does outside in the, you know, quote unquote, real world. But there was something very interesting that she wrote in a very early entry that I think is 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 a good picture of where her mind was as a child. She said, I'm going to tell my diary a secret. I have made a resolution not to have any friends and not to be attached to anyone outside of my family. One can't be sure of staying anywhere. And if one leaves, there's too much sadness. Right. So, mm. you know, it's one thing to say like rootless cosmopolitanism, and the effects of it. But then you think, you know, you're talking about a, a 13 or 11 year old girl who's leaving home. She apparently thought when you were going to America, she thought it was going to be like cowboys and Indians. 
That's what she that was her picture of America when she was on the boat. And so, you know, it's a very and her father has abandoned her within the last year. It's a very difficult time. I mean, it would be for anybody. It's a really challenging time. Um, Rosa, once they get there, Rosa becomes a sort of like girl boss entrepreneur is like buying up property and renting it out and like, you know, making some moves business wise. Um, vocal coaching because she was a singer. She eventually gets into Rosa does her her mother Nin's mother gets into shopping in stores in New York for rich Cubans, including the wife of the president of Cuba. So she's like the personal shopper like personal, for the, the wow. elite of Cuba. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Now, eventually, the Cuban economy takes a dive, and this whole thing falls apart, and she's left with a bunch of money that's unpaid, and it turns into a whole thing. But that's Nin is constantly one or one step or zero steps away from like the the real thing happening right the famous people the powerful people she's always sort of right outside of it even as a child right even though the child you know they don't even necessarily have that much means and or or status in society she's still somehow kind of right there um in this time too this move to new york you know nin is she hates school she's stubborn She's, you know, lazy in terms of school, at least. And here's something her mother does that's kind of awful. Everything bad about uh, Ennis, like being lazy in school, her attitude, whatever. She refers to that as the nin in you. Or she says, like, oh, you're being a nin right now. Oh, that's that's a bad side. thing to do to a mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. 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 Ooh, <laughs> and it's don't funny do that, that it's funny that Nin keeps that name though. She could have used any one of her nineteen names in her publishing mm. record, right? Yeah. <laughs> she keeps that name even when she gets married later. She keeps the Nin name. Um, oh, it's like yeah. the Crowley's mother calling him yeah, the beast. Calling six, him the six, great six. Beast. You yeah. gotta be careful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's mm. significant, though. I mean, to keep the Nin name is essentially a way of uh, deteriorating her own helplessness at the face of her domineering but then absent father that's sort of right right taking up that trauma she's she's taking up the trauma the way that it's so popular nowadays but Mm -hmm. in in a real way though and that propels her literary career forward as well absolutely absolutely um now she hits 16 she gets a few um uh, poems published in a magazine and she uses this to convince her mother that she doesn't need to go to school anymore mom i'm gonna be a big writer I don't need the school business. Who cares? Like, just let me drop out. And her mother, you know, right or wrong, lets her drop out of school. Right. So she doesn't graduate high school. Um, she's for a few years. She's the, the agreement is she can drop out of school as long as she does work around the house. Right. <laughs> but she doesn't. She is. And it's and it's neat for a couple of years, not really doing anything except writing in her diary. Um and, you know, this becomes the sort of like, this is where it becomes, starts to become incredibly self-indulgent. It's a minute in, an, analysis of every single thing that happens to her. Um, and then later on, it becomes, it, it morphs and evolves into something different. But at least at first, it's like, this is what happened today. This is what I think of it. This is what it means. This is what they think it means. Like, it's just, it, she's writing. It's, it's like a one-to-one map of her life, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, I just can't imagine. Just, just, just your average poster on Twitter. Here's yeah, a exactly. sandwich. Real neat core, neat aristocracy, but a femme yes. style neat. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Micro yeah. documenting your life. 
like a typical schizo poster. Like, right, right, my right. God, it's made. Here's, here's a Spotify link. Right. Yeah. There were Tumblr <laughs> accounts that did this. There were really? Tumblr femcel needs that did. She was the, the godmother of every Tumblr, um, you know, mentally ill, uh, neat woman. You you do realize, Joe, we're speaking a dialect. You understand that. Yeah, it's true. Live journal. It's a very online podcast. I hate that I understand everything you just said. The live journal stem cell calculating and every little detail of your life, categorizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing, too. She becomes, I think, partially because she can in the diary can imagine scenarios and play things out ahead of time and afterwards and all this she starts to lie a lot um this is the other thing we're gonna see this kevin she is the biggest liar of everyone we have covered by far she she wow. may have told even more Crowley. individual yeah yeah even more than Crowley. Really? she may have told more told more lies than any individual who's ever lived so um, I wouldn't be. She's in it. She's in Guinness, Whoa. I think. Um, and here's where a big one happens when she's around 16. Let me just, just read this from the Bayer biography again. Um, actually, Nin lied frequently. Some of them were merely tales told to keep from being scolded. Others were truly bizarre, such as the one that haunted her for the rest of her life. Uh, this woman, Anais uh, Sanchez, at the Waldorf at the Waldorf. Astoria school where with her children Kuka and Eduardo invited uh, Anais Nin to join them at the theater. Anais was detained on her way to the Queen Station and ri- arrived in Manhattan later than expected but still early enough for the performance. When the cousins asked what delayed her Anais could not tell the truth mundane as it was. She said my imagination was there my poor father's greatest fault and my heritage. What made me lie? I don't know. The lie was truly a whopper. She invented a railroad strike with angry workers stopping the train, breaking windows, and beating the conductor. Her imagined adventure, imagined adventure was replete with blood, noise, and violence, and everyone believed her. Astonished at her own creativity, she felt a double surge of power. Not only could she invent such a, such a fantastic story, she could make people believe it. Forty years later, she still marveled that marveled that the, that quote the power of the spirit is frightening for miracles, for creation, and for destruction. So she at this point she's lying. She doesn't even really know why she's lying. It's just like it can't. She again, I she started to lose the distinction. I think between the dream in her head and the actual world. I think they became coextensive with each other. Um, and that is, this a, is that's a great way to live. If you can pull that off and manage, <laughs> that is no, you're right. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. very hard yeah. to sustain. However, oh, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as time goes on, the family fortune sort of disappears a little bit, right? They had the money from the Danish, mer- the rich Danish merchant stuff, and then Rosa had her mother had been making some money, and that all started to kind of fall apart, right? Um, and she wants to go. She decides she wants to continue her education, and she actually gets into Columbia. I don't even understand how you get into Columbia when you don't finish high school. You know, times are different, obviously. Columbia or or Barnard. She got into Columbia. Apparently Columbia. This is what the biography says. Hmm. I don't really know the ins and outs of it. This is what the biography says. Um, She was allowed to enroll, but a dean told her that she was not uh, emotionally mature enough to take classes like philosophy or psychology. When she eventually yeah. leaves, she says that the only thing she learned was composition, grammar, French, and boys. Whoa. <laughs> That's kind of like that Sam Hyde bit. Remember, he's like, you know what young girls do in college? Woo! 
minutes. <laughs> with a lot of hot guys. <laughs> then by the time they get to second year, yeah. oh my god, I haven't picked an AG yet. Woo! Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's no. great. Aye, aye, aye. All right, so but let me I give you it, it is, it yeah, is an inst- it, no, uh, the university system in, in the United States is an institutional rumspringer. It is. That's, yeah, that's what it is yeah. Yeah, by design. Yeah. And, and you kind of understand there is a little bit of a need for that. It's just the question of whether it's the right to to pair it with. Sure. And you know what I mean? $50,000 a year for it. Right. Uh, right. To yeah. just have I made a the mistake of paying attention to my studies in university. Yeah. I should have been. Uh, <laughs> and look what it got you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. eh? oh my God. <laughs> this is actually a passage from her reflecting about this biographical part of her life with okay. up yeah. until now. So this is from on truth and reality, which uh, she actually attended um, psychotherapy with Otto Rank, the famous mm-hmm. you know, hired to Freud yeah, only for a few months. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, Otto Rank got a little too close to the truth, but well, mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. So she says this creative will sometimes manifests itself very early on in life. At the age of mine, I was a danger of losing my life. A doctor made a mistake diagnosis and said I had tuberculosis of the hip and would never walk again. My instant, uh, my instant reaction was to ask for a pencil and paper and begin to make um, written portraits of my whole family to write poems. I even put in the front page of my member of the French Academy, um, which to me seemed to higher, highest honor award awarded to a writer. Type of uh, surgery, so forth. It was a dramatization of the artist's solution to the obstacles of life. That's very important. So basically, this is why she can't stop lying. Uh, she can't stop eating hot chips and lying. So um, <laughs> I was dramatized with the artist's solution. <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, all of my life, I've talked to and written a great deal about uh, the artist. It was often misunderstood as a cultist, uh, excluding uh, non-artists and uncreative people. But that was not so. I love non-artists as well. But for me, the artist simply means one who can transform ordinary life into a beautiful creation with a craft. But I did not mean creation strictly applied only to the arts. I meant creation in life. The creation of a child, a garden, a house, a dress. I was referring to creativity in all its aspects than to carry on. She says, by the human condition, particularly applied to women in her training for devotion, service, loyalty to her personal world. I started with the usual handicaps, which I share with so many. The broken home, the uprooting to a strange country whose language I did not know. Everything contributed to the creating an alienated child. I found it extremely difficult to enter the flow of life, difficult and painful, because there was always double struggle, which Dr. Rank describes in Truth and Reality, the conflict between being different and wanting to be close to others. I felt different, but I longed for friendship and love. Mm -hmm. The struggle to maintain my difference was accentuated by the cultural contrast and uprooting the problem of language. So this goes to the heart and she admits this, and this is not Anais Nin, the literary figure. This is Anais mm-hmm. Nin, the essayist, which mm-hmm. is important because it's her sort of subtly reflecting on her life in those conditions that created this, you know, noxious cauldron that did produce, you know, a, a great artist. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you can see this blending of, how uprootedness and these sort of traumas earlier on in life contributed to this blending of reality and fiction. And so when we do get to House of Incest, that is all about viewing even the most mundane situations imbued with this creative will that she mm-hmm. constantly refers to throughout all of, her, all of her life up until her deathbed, in fact. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's that was great. That was great. That is my and, yeah. honest take on her. That is my charitable yeah. take on her. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's very fair and, and, and insightful. Uh, we're going to see, mm-hmm. too, 
we're going to see. Well, I can't wait till we get to what she called the trapeze. That was her life mm. for many years. But um, I want to give a picture of her um, at this age when she's sort of at Columbia. This is like the early 1920s, right? This is from the Bear biography again. Anais was pencil thin, the look to which fashionable American women aspired in the 1920s. She had a crown of thick brown hair, a creamy complexion, and her hazel eyes could change disarmingly from blue-green to yellow-brown. She had never lost the trilled Spanish-French R, which gave her English pronunciation a hint of a slightly exotic lisp. Among Rose's European friends were musicians who serenaded Anais, poets who said her beauty inspired them, and painters who wanted her to pose. Um, for her, for a while, her look was like the look, right. That people wanted, um, and she would become an artist model. She even at one point was, uh, painted by the illustrator, Charles Dana Gibson for a cover of the Saturday evening post. And this was before she had anything like a writer writing career. Right. Um, I mean, this isn't sustainable, but this is, she was strikingly, she was strikingly attractive in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a somewhat unorthodox way when she was yeah. you know a young a young woman she didn't look like every other woman but she was she would turn heads for sure um she was didn't know how rockwell's publication by the way sorry I, I don't know if Post? rockwell yeah. did i know rockwell did a lot of covers for it yeah yeah yeah, yeah that was his main mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah and it was a big deal i mean there was a lot of fiction and stuff in there too mm-hmm. um for a while that was a good way to get paid if you were a writer and you wanted to when you used to be able to sell fiction um <laughs> now in 1921 she meets this guy, Hugh Parker Guler, Geiler, I'm not sure exactly how it's it, who went by Hugo. This guy's about three years older than her. Um, he's tall, handsome, very outwardly masculine kind of guy, especially when he was younger, um, who was also a bit of a poet, right? He had a kind of a sensitive side for sure. He had an artistic side. And we're going to talk about his artistic career as well at some point a little bit because it's worth mentioning. Um, he was actually, he'd actually graduated from Columbia had a BA in English literature and economics. And when they met, he was being ushered into this training program for the National City Bank of New York. He was a banker and a poet. (laughs) Um, And they kind of had this odd relationship. When it first started, um, Hugo's father didn't want him to be involved with NAS because she was Catholic, right? Um, And, you know, that that didn't go over so hot. I got to say the one true faith. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I have to say. Exactly. Indeed. Boom, yeah. Boom. Geo. Mm-hmm. Um, there you go. Uh, Hugo would essentially disavow his family and convert to Catholicism to be with her. Now, the disavowal kind of faded and they got back to the family kind of came back together. But at first it was like, you know what? Fine. I don't care. I'm going to be with this. All woman. is forgiven. She right. snared a soul for Christ. Right. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> right. Oh, she did. She did so many uncatholic things. It's oh, my God. It's, I mean, oh, my her God. Whole life. She's the right. Least she was a actually Catholic. Catholic. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. Air quotes. Mm. Um, the thing, their favorite thing to get, do together, the two of them, was to read each other's. They wrote in a common journal that was like a diary, and then they would Aww. like sit around and read bits to each other. It's very romantic in a way, right? It's it's and and then it eventually, Nin kind of took that journal over. Like it, you know, at first it's sort of fifty fifty. You can imagine, and like over time, it's it's Hugo. Eventually, Hugo gets kind of elbowed out of his own common journal, right? And it's all about Nin. Um, 
Of at course, same, of, co- yeah, of yeah. course, of course, of course. That's my that's my plan for the podcast, right, Brad. Right. Once we reach uh, takeoff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me just uh, well, hang once on you get one the Peter Thiel money, there you go. Uh, yeah, over oh, the Thiel money. Uh, your mic's not working, Brad. Your mic's yeah, not let working. Me see yeah. here. Can <laughs> I do it? Anyway. Can I mute Brad? There you go. Here we go. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> oh my God! He's, oh, he's, oh, he did it. He did it. Okay, all right. I'll let you back. I'll let you back. When I was right. when I was muted by Lev, I knew up. that was the end. By the way, <laughs> I left and then I left. So there you go. Yeah. Oh my god, oh, man. So okay, so um, let me roll a couple other things. There's, these are important aspects of her. So before she gets married, Rosa doesn't know what to do with her because she's not in education. She doesn't know how to have a job. She can't even clean the house. So there's a thought for a while that she should become a Cuban debutante. Rosa has all these connections in the Cuban elite, right? She shops for all these people. She can get her into Cuba and like, you know, put her out as a debutante. There's even a point where she's a picture of a young uh, and is, is in the Cuba, a Cuban newspaper in a newspaper in Havana as like presenting her to the public to possibly be married off. Whoa. Yeah. Cuban debutante sounds like a great sandwich. It does. Like kind of funny. It does yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Who, what, what year Pickles. was this, by the way? This would have been the early 20s. So like 22, 21. Was Batista there. there? This was like way after. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming know, that Cuban history is kind of bad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that a pro-American regime was there at the time it, it had to have yeah. been because of yeah, the band yeah the because the, 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 the marines went into the philippines and other places so i'm assuming that yeah latin america was firmly under the control of yeah the nascent american empire but yeah. no no I, I mean america was quite isolationist at this time but I'm, I'm assuming that later on with the batista regime um i don't know did she ever talk about communism at all that's one thing barely she like yeah. pretended she was sympathetic for a while because she of was course, of a, course. a communist but she didn't really <laughs> yeah. care it was yeah. about other people. Communism is about, you know, anything that's about other people doesn't really matter to her that much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, okay, so she doesn't obviously get married off as a Cuban debutante. She does get married to Hugo, um, you know, and it's funny for all this sexual adventure stuff. We're talking about this, the erotic life of Anais Lin and all that. She had never had sex. She never had. She apparently never had sex before marriage. Apparently, whoa. And and uh, when they did consummate, it did not go well because, first of all, Hugo climaxed instantaneously, and then later on other ch- attempts could not seem to get get it up. Um, Lynn didn't know enough. <laughs> That's pretty based, I must say. Pretty Lindy. <laughs> that's a problem that's yeah, gonna be a yeah, problem for sure and nin didn't know nin didn't know enough about how sex was supposed to work to like you know be like well what if we try this like she didn't mm. know anything right and she also was so squeamish talking about sex that she couldn't even bring anything up like she couldn't say like hugo what's the matter why can't you get it up like she wait wait so, so, but like, she writes about it so later she, Oh, oh, later. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. She hasn't had it her sexual awakening yet. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I see. I see. Okay, right. helpful. Okay. Yeah. So she couldn't even write the word "sex" in her diary at this point when she gets married to Hugo. She was too squeamish about it. Um, now, on the other hand, 
Hugo is financing her and her whole family, right? He's a 23-year-old man, and he's paying for her mother and her two younger brothers to live in New York City in a separate house at one point, um, though at times they live together. It, they, the, the, the ups and downs of the family finances are so crazy that it's impossible to even try to track it. Um, uh, you know, but it's pretty soon that they're kind of living beyond their means, right? He's paying for two households and he's 24. Even if you're like a Wall Street banker, you're fresh out of school, you're not making the big, big bucks yet, right? It's kind of hard. To, it's kind of hard, hard to manage. Um, he it starts to kind of work so hard. She's a, she was attracted to the sort of poetic side of him, but he's now he's working long hours. He eventually sort of loses that poetic side a little bit because he's focused on business, focused on making a living. And she is you know, proportionally unattracted to him as this happens, right? She wants the poet. She wants she wants him to be rich and a great artist, right? <laughs> One or the other oh, isn't God. gonna isn't gonna be good enough. Oh yeah. no. Oh that no. is right? the most oh. unrealistic of all kinks that she has, the most extreme kink that <laughs> is that it's it's like it's like yeah. I want a homesteader your husband, but he also has to be like a, a tech CFO, you know. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, in the midst of this, she decides something that she wants to do, possibly as a bid to get closer to her father, at least sort of spiritually. Um, she decides she's gonna become a quote Spanish dancer. And becoming a Spanish dancer, what this means is like you would go and perform at parties and clubs and things like that. And um, what this really meant was that Hugo put out a bunch of money to pay for really expensive costumes and lessons. And then Nin kind of like didn't bother to rehearse or like try to get gigs or anything. It was more like it's just Hugo's <laughs> just shelling out bucks. Now, um, the other thing is, oh, this is this is a great this is a great comment about it from somebody else from the Bear biography. Her problem was she started too late and did not work nearly hard enough to be a Spanish dancer. And yet Hugo's literally going broke trying to make this happen for her. And this is a common theme throughout their life. Yeah. Um, you know, because all she really cares about is her diary, honestly. This is still she that's all she really cares about. Now, she at this point also in her diaries, because we're about to start the inklings of her sexual awakening, she um will write in her diary very early on before the sexual adventure phase she will write sex without love i hate and mm. when we know her future that's kind of a ridiculous thing for her to say <laughs> um but okay we need to picture her she's at home she's supposedly a spanish dancer but not really right she just has a bunch of costumes um she's got this elaborate home that hugo has bought has bought and that she is decorating in a very idiosyncratic style and the family is hemorrhaging money even though you know hugo's doing okay but they are spending every dollar plus that he makes and then she meets this guy i think his name is paco morales okay and paco morales is going to be her dance teacher hugo's paying for lessons with this dance teacher i'm going to read a little oh passage. i've seen this one yeah oh man yeah, yeah. <laughs> i only give you a description of the the first man that she has extramarital stuff with let me give you a let's find this page here um let's see uh da, 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 da. hold on hold on page 83 um she went with the, oh she went with a different name when she was a dancer anyway and anita aguilera which i think is funny um morales <laughs> <laughs> morales was 50 small dark and shabby 
His personal hygiene often made the finicky Ananias turn up her nose into her scented handkerchief, but his passion was thrilling. And soon she was joining him after class in the basement where costumes were stored. As she stood against the piles of shawls and dresses, Morales knelt before her, lifted her dress, and, quote, kissed my sex until I grew dizzy. Despite his entreaties, Ananias told the diary she could never, quote, bring myself to go to his hotel room as he begged me to. Right, so this is her first first extramarital thing. No shower bros vindicated. Let right. those pheromones do their work. <laughs> That's right. That's Go right, right from the right. office to the dance studio to yep. your date. Don't That's stop right. home to shower. Who cares? Yeah, uh, powerful. Who cares? That also comes yeah. up uh, in her erotica to the sort of the very like, uh, you know, intangible aspects of sexuality. Not that I would know as a true mm. cell, but like the scent <laughs> comes up as a lot. And, and also I would point out in Spanish dancing, and her um, knowledge of like Calypso and so forth and all of these different dance and cultural styles of the Basque. Um, one thing that is persistent, there's this one story in Delta of Venus. Um, what's it called? The Ring, The Ring, where it's about mm. this per- uh, this brothel in Peru and this erotic dancer who ends up having live sex shows with these uh, rich, usually plantation owner men. And it seems that the one persistent theme that comes up in her erotica is sort of this fascination with with um, the inherent, I would say, borderline um, energetic and you know borderline animalistic eroticism of a lot of quote unquote foreign women um, mm. that always comes out there d- describing the dark hue of their skin, uh, their particular uh, you know sexual bits and so forth. It would almost get her canceled nowadays. To sort of place this dark eroticism at the feet of these different peoples, usually in the global south, you know, usually in, in Latin America and so forth. And, uh, you know, it seems that there is this persistent theme of the sexual excitement of the, you know, other, if you will, um, that a lot of academics have talked about. And of course, I think that's sort of like an, the, the racialized elements of her eroticism is something that often doesn't get talked about by a lot of those, you know, millennial cat lady MFA grads that worship her for obvious reasons, because it, it brings up this question of um, sexuality in, you know, the 19th and 20th century and the sort of the, the rise of erotic literature at this time and mm-hmm. how the sort of sexual anxiety, but also the sexual excitement of these other peoples comes into right. play. And there's a whole, you know, history and feminist and post-colonial studies literature about this as well, this exoticism combined with the erotic. I mean, is it fair to say there's a sort of a thing where it's like, um, if you're not attracted to somebody from a different race, you're racist. If you are attracted to somebody from a different race, you're also also racist. racist. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. For different reasons. Right, right, right. But still, the the end result is the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's describe kind of what she, where she and Hugo are at at this point, because poor suffering Hugo, man. Like, I mean, Mm. got it, but like, let's just step back for a second and and describe the situation being married. If you're Hugo uh, Guler married to Annas Nin. Okay. She has forced him to convert. He's, he's had to convert to Catholicism and lose his family to be with her. She doesn't care about Catholicism. She thinks religion is irrelevant, right? So, you know, why didn't she convert to his religion then? Um, I mean, if she doesn't care, right? Um, uh, he paid for her whole family, not just her, to survive, right? Shipped them from America to Paris to kind of be in their same orbit. Um, and he had to kind of 
uh, and then she, then he she blew the rest of his money on the Spanish dancing career. That the only real outcome of it was that she was fooling around with some other man for the first time, right? Um, and then she is like, at the same time, can't get out of her head, her own head enough to even have sex with Hugo, right? So that's the situation. Uh, two years into marriage. Okay. All yeah. right. Whoa. Yeah. Big right? kind of rough, cut, right? Yeah, big time. Wait, yeah. and she's, yeah. and, but she must have some charisma or some. She's an, attra- she's an attractive woman, and she's got yeah. this sort of exotic, myth- mystical, like she's like a, she's like a manic pixie dream girl kind mm. of. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, mm. hey, I can like see a, why she. Five hundred days a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I could see, yeah. If you see pictures of her, you could see why she'd be appealing. Like you could yeah. see why you'd be in a social situation. You'd be like, "Oh, what's her deal?" Like I can totally see why you would start to get pulled in, right? Mm. Okay. Um, okay. Here's a quote from the Bear biography. By mid 1928, so she's 25. Her feelings for Hugo as lover and confidant were eroding rapidly, and to evade them, she engaged in a frenzy of frivolous social ex- activity for the better part of the year. To decorate their fairy tale apartment on the boulevard, Hugo borrowed against his salary and persuaded his mother to loan him $5,000, which she did with the proviso that he repay her um, $100 a month at 6% interest. Um, that's like $1,700, right? It's so a times 17 by the, by that year, for that year to, to today's money. Uh, NIS used $3,000 to turn the apartment into a Moorish Oriental Indian wonderland and hinted so broadly about wanting a fur coat that that cost one quarter of Hugo's yearly salary that he used the remaining $2,000 from his loan as a down payment. The debts the loan was supposed to erase remained unpaid. So she's basically just blowing all of his money. Oh my God. More than than all of it. Other people's, she's starting to blow other people's money, right? Um, Yeah, just, just kind of crazy. Okay, now around this time that I'm reading this 1928 into 1929 she has a further extramarital affair and this is with the famed American educator John Erskine uh John Erskine is a guy who taught at Amherst and Columbia he was also the first president of Juilliard um again Whoa. Nin is always in contact she's always right next to like the world happening right like the actual like centers of cultural power or whatever um He's best known for writing something called The Moral Obligation to be Intelligent. Which I don't really know what it's about, but I thought that was a funny title. Um, a book that came out in 1915. He'd actually known Hugo from when Hugo was at Columbia. So he's a he's a Hugo's associate, uh, an older man, but he's like maybe Hugo's kind of mentor a little bit. Um, and she tries to seduce him. She uh, Nin tries to seduce Erskine and it ends up being very disappointing. Like Erskine kind of like it doesn't really come off. He ends up sort of like jerking off on her basically. Um, and, oh. and, and then like, and, and he, you know, he, he kind of resists, like he resists. He's like, Oh, I could not do that to Hugo. But instead of like actually resisting and like walking away, he like doesn't quite go. He goes halfway. And this is very confusing to Nin. She's like, does he want me? Does he not want me? And she ends up like writing about this for like a year and a half, this whole disappointing affair. Um, but I think this whole thing, the fact that she was able to seduce these two men, um, this is where the sexual adventurer stuff starts to come out. It's yeah. like, oh, the, those two men are out there. Who else? Who else is out there? Like, what else? Both of those things were different. Like, Hugo's different. Like, she, this is where her mind starts to wander into, like, what else can happen sexually out there in the world? Um, So 
there's now we have we've talked a little bit about her writing, but we haven't talked about, you know, various bits we've read, but we haven't talked about her in her actual life, sort of in the timeline, her writing. That's because she hasn't really written anything but the bi- the diary, right? <laughs> in, into well into well into the 1920s. Um she doesn't get um a, uh she doesn't actually write anything that's that kind of pops off until this book on D.H. Lawrence. Well, it would become a book later, but it starts out as just a piece. Um, and it's called The Unprofessional Study. D.H. Lawrence was like one of her, maybe her primary influences, I would say, at least from a from a craft standpoint. Uh, you know, And as people know, D.H. Lawrence is a, one of these figures who was banned for sort of sexually explicit content. A lot of people accused him of being writing smut, essentially. Maybe uh, Chatterley's Lover, right? That's, yeah, 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 that was that yeah. was the big one. So, so you know, Nin was very inspired by this and, and ended, up, ended up writing first a piece and then later a book that um, that was actually pretty well respected for not, again, she didn't have any formal education. She's not an academic, right? She's just an enthusiast um, and a good reader and a, and a pretty talented writer. Um, let me read this little bit from the bio. Um, let's see if I can find it. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Here, this is a little bit about this. Uh, this is a little bit about this D.H. Lawrence thing. Subtitled "An Unprofessional Study," this book is a deep. It is a deeply personal text that tells as much about Nin's theories on everything from psychoanalysis to sex as about Lawrence's. She wrote it during a time of personal crisis when she was subjecting her sexuality to intense scrutiny that would have lasting repercussions. From Hugo and Eduardo, Eduardo is her closeted homosexual cousin who she sort of has a weird flirtatious relationship with, to flirtations with visiting bankers and society ruse, to the pathetic dancing teacher Morales and the teasing homosexual gigolo, uh, Another Morales spelled differently to the passionate strangers she yearned for in daydreams. Every relationship in her life was metaphorically balanced on the brink of a bottomless chasm of irrevocable change. Whether the change would result in Laurentian terms in a quote, strange conjunction, a quote, star equilibrium remained to be seen. But Anais Nin believed that her, that writing her book would provide answers to her questions. So there's something about like in her writing and her few sexual experiences, there's like a festering, um, there's like a festering desire that eventually she has to project into the real world and actually act on. Yeah. It takes, it takes her a while to actually get there. Right. To sort the of push it out. Into the world. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's funny though, her relation to gay men, because I noticed that, um, Oh, I don't know. This is pretty controversial. Yeah. I don't think I should say this, <laughs> oh, but whatever, you know, this is hot take. Uh, a lot of hypersexual women, they do have this, um, a lot of, I would say like, <laughs> well-adjusted women are kind of like, you know, on the fence with gay men because mm-hmm. uh, like gay men do tend to have a very, some of them anyways, have a very dismissive attitude towards women. I was talking about this with my friend who is a rad femme. Um, but when it comes to Anais Nin, her relation to gay men w- mixed in with her erotic exploration. is quite funny because there's one, there's this one short story in Delta Venus where it's essentially a very sexually active woman getting sexual pleasure off of witnessing two very twinkish gay men go at it. And also there's implied pegging and so forth. So like, Mm. there's like a domino between her, like having, you know, not having sex with her husband that dominoes into writing about pegging and, you know, being exciting about gay men, because I noticed that there is a certain kind of domineering women that, um, again, this is very controversial, but, uh, (laughs) 
you know, the femcell thing when it comes to the relation between media of like, you know, Tumblr shipping, uh, trying to like me make male characters gay. They have a fascination with Futanari, which, um, sorry, Fujoshi, which, uh, well, Futanari is different. Um, uh, well, for those who don't know in anime, Futanari is about a uh, gay twinkish young boys that fem cells just love for some reason. There's this, and I talked about this with Helena Kirchner actually on my uh, podcast. This is news to me. I don't, I've never even heard. This yeah. Yeah. Before. A lot of okay. fem cells, a lot of women who have a very distinct sexual energy that is frustrated, but also hypersexualized, they, for some reason cannot get over a particular form of twinkish gay eroticism. This is true. This, this is okay. study by academics. So trust, trust me on this. Trust me. <laughs> I believe um, source, yeah. source, <laughs> source. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Geo's so, been uh, Geo's been looking at my alt accounts uh, yeah. <laughs> lately. Um, so it's funny because Niacin does have this relation to gay men, where they are a source of sexual excitement for women who are in turn hypersexualized, and mm. also there's like this weirdo form of uh rad femme thought um where like the picture of the man is is sort of like uh, uh, ethereal and you know twinkish and not your typical burly masculine man right mm-hmm. and nice Nin writes her characters in almost all of her eroticism as men who are very easily controllable by women men who are either perfect who are not masculine in the sense of all of these literary figures that she, um, the characters written by literary figures that she interacted with throughout her life, in particular mm-hmm. Norman Mailer. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Like those men are like borderline, I hate to say it, mm-hmm. borderline rapey and domineering mm-hmm. and, and crazy. And, and you know, Hemingway and Mailer, and to a little bit of an extent, Henry Miller, these mm-hmm. are literary figures that write characters of men that are like literal, like either giga chads. Or like very like high-minded men who totally disregard the feminine, but right. Anais Nin is writing male characters from uh, at least a borderline feminist perspective, where men are something else. Men are like, um, I don't know if you know. Again, this is totally terminal internet stuff, but this is like the, you know, like the racist rad femmes, right? Mm. Like the the hyperborean feminists, as I call them. They have a very they have the same picture as men, as yeah. men being like. I remember one time Radfem, uh, what's her name? Radfem Austrian painter. We were talking once on Twitter um, on, on the TL. She mm. had this tweet about um, uh, like how the perfect man is basically a twink. Right. And you know, me, I am not that like, look mm. at me, my God, mm. I'm not. Mm. So I got very offended. I'm like, I said, this is terrible. How dare you? But you could see why there is this linkage between radical feminist thought, at least in some portions, not all portions and men, as more of kind of like uh, the denuded and demure form of sexuality. No longer mm. the woman is demure. Now mm. the men takes man takes on a demure role. And literally all of her erotic stories have men who take on the role. It is women who is leading. It is yeah. men who is submitting to the sexual wants and pleasures of women. And this is why there is this connection between the fem cell and a particular form of gay eroticism. Not the huh. real you know, 80s bathhouse South forums <laughs> form of gay eroticism. This is like, you know, totally twink anime, almost not real gay culture. Kind of like the, the right. this I like exaggerated thing. to the point of being like 
yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's probably the most online and most epic footnote we've had on <laughs> darkness in now well over 50 yeah. episodes. So I applaud you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, very interesting. But there's mm-hmm. something about a, a particularly um, not conventionally attractive women who are hypersexualized that do like have this weird relation to a particular form of gay man. It's, yeah, it's yeah. you know, like maybe I, I it's because it, the mm. masculine is no longer threatening in that environment. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's an easy explanation for it. And is at least partially yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. You made me think it makes me think of Bowie. Bowie seems Bowie's, yeah. personified this androgynous. No, not that he was not that he was the he passive had actor, but characters though. He yeah, had yeah, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. A, he for some adjacent. Well, in any in any case, yeah. The gender bending, um, the fact that he 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 was in a way not he was a beautiful boy in, a, in mm-hmm. the, the Paglian sense, but mm-hmm. he did have he did he certainly had masculine politics. He was very based in secretly red pill. So, um, <laughs> well, I can't wait to do the Bowie episode. It's probably going to be in 2024, but yes, yeah, so, yeah. awesome, Brad. Yeah. So, okay. So that's that's all great, and it's true that that Nin did have Nin had a couple of things. She would often try to seduce homosexual men, and she would, um, or at least, and there's a number of occasions which she did, and she often very much got oh, she got off. She got off on being able to seduce men and thus turn the tables of power in, in the dynamic. This is like she didn't even realize this at first, but eventually when she found that she could do it, it was a massive thing for her. And this would often take on like a streak of cruelty. Like she liked to see men squirm. Right. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. coming up. Mommy dummy. <laughs> right. Right. She had a little bit of that. Now, I don't know that turned into. Yeah, that was that would be like situationally like a man who wasn't going to come for her or had sort of told himself that he wasn't going to fall for it, getting his temp, getting his heart rate to go up. Right. Seeing yeah. like trying to get him to to take that step over. Was and you can uh, see why seducing a gay man is very erotic because mm-hmm. you were seducing a man that does not like women. Right. Yeah, so right. that's like the ultimate right. prize. That's like the right. scalp. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, she comes into contact this third 19 early 1930s area era she comes into contact with something that would be highly effective for her and would solve all of her problems and that would be psychoanalysis um as you can tell i'm, I'm joking hopefully <laughs> it like... didn't it didn't it didn't mend her mental illness it produced even greater forms oh of mental illness. we're gonna see yeah. we're gonna see yeah. so it started out where she just her, she performed sort of psychoanalysis on herself by reading freud and you know whatever if read read some freud that's fine um, but uh, this is interesting. Let me read this bit that she wrote, which was her qualifications uh, for psychoanalysis. Um, I think this was written in 1931. Um, this is a list in her diary. My qualifications for psychoanalysis. Preference for listening rather than uh, talking myself. I don't know if that's true. Gift oh. for listening rather than talking myself. Natural habit of analyzing what is told me during and after talk. Exceptional good memory to retain confidences, tones, gestures. Habit of writing down confidences and clarifying them. Habit of brooding over people and spontaneous desire to heal them. Patience. Many proofs of understanding beyond my own experiences. Proof that my mind works naturally in Freud's manner. Intuition. Right, so... She wanted to sort of be a psychoanalyst. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, she gets into, so she eventually does find a um, an, an analyst to to take her in as a patient. Um, but it's early days of psycho, psychoanalysts. It's not like today. Oh. There's not better help, right? So 
Um, you know, in the early days, 1930s, basically every psychoanalyst alive has a Wikipedia page now because there wasn't that many of them. Yeah. Right. The first right. one that she comes into contact with is this guy named uh, Rene Allende. And Rene Allende, let's see. Um, I think, do I have a little bit on him? Um, so he was, he was, there's, there's so many things that now are unethical that this guy does. And and there are various other or various other uh, uh, um, analysts that she has throughout her life. Um, she, she treats at one point she's tre he's treating both Nin and her husband, um, and they oh, would God. often they would often have the same psychoanalyst. Um, uh, Allende tells um, diagnoses her cousin Eduardo with homosexuality because she's seeing she's she's analyzing her cousin too. Um, diagnoses his his homosexuality eduardo's homosexuality as stemming from quote his unrequited desire to have sex with nin um he would tell nin that she should sleep with her cousin eduardo in order to cure him of homosexuality right so this, this was, is a, this oh. is approaching john money level right. <laughs> this know? is the height of psych of early 1930s psychoanalysis we're gonna make our way to freud at some point yeah. on this pod and yeah. i'm sure we'll have lots yeah. of opinions about it but yes. my goodness yeah. yeah yeah let me let me read a little bit about him because he's a fascinating figure um Allende was one of the very first psychoanalysts uh, in France and one of the 12 founding members of the Paris Society of Psychoanalysis. He was also a homeopath obsessed with the occult and astrology and of the course. author of more than 20 books, including The Symbolism yeah. of Numbers and Capitalism and Sexuality. I just got to say, I just got to hang on one second. Yeah. They're the same picture. Psychoanalysis yeah, yeah, yeah. is right. It's the yeah. same exact yeah. no, thing. Well, no, the roots yeah. of psychoanalysis come explicitly from a lot of these like spiritualist and occult movements in the 19th century like as much mm -hmm. as freud wanted to bury that and he was an atheist and mm -hmm. worship science i mean his great protege was arthur grodek who was a mm -hmm. fucking hypnotist so yeah, yeah, yeah. freud employed hypnotism i mean yeah. young more so because of, to me the reason i classify young as a perennialist is because his religious studies and he he expanded his scope he truly was a philosopher and a scholar whereas freud was the consummate well not really i mean the way his, his ethical practices were not very apt but you yeah. know he was the consummate clinician or at least he liked to think he was he thought himself was the one yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. whereas yeah. nowadays in academia freud is taken up as a theorist more than anything so right yeah. right right and young is of course excluded because yeah. uh for various reasons but yeah. that's another episode yeah. for another time yeah he, <laughs> he, he happens to take he happens to take god seriously yeah uh, it's yeah. part of it <laughs> and also okay. i mean they try to accuse him of being a fascist and all that but oh, well, of course that's, well that's yeah. you get to you just get to apply that to anybody you don't like so yeah that's easy although he did say that the austrian painter had very effeminate handwriting <laughs> He's very cautious <laughs> and feminine. So. Interesting. God. Yeah. We, we, we have reached a, reached a point on this podcast where we're getting hate from all sides. So Yeah, I know. Who are you going to piss up? Yep. Yep. Yeah, everybody. Yep. It's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, not, go. We love you. We love yeah. you all. We love you all. It's oh, all good. Uh, okay, so a little bit more on Allende, just because I think this guy's fascinating. And I want... It, it's important to have a picture of who is... Oh, she went to therapy. That's great. No. Go to no, therapy? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They're obsessed to go to therapy right. nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Not only yeah. was he a psychoanalyst and thereby one, you know, one of the very few options for Nin, she was drawn to him because he believed, and this is maybe true, he was very um 
very intensely believed that neurosis was a problem for the artist and that it has to be resolved in order for the artist to function in the world. Like, yeah. the, the, uh, other than this idea of like the artist should be neurotic and should lean into the neurosis, his point was like, no, the neurosis is actually getting in your way. You have a tendency towards neurosis because you're an artist, but actually the neurosis ends up getting in your way. And so she thought that he might be able to help her because she was at this point, she was trying to write fiction. She was trying to get out of the diary and take up in the footsteps of D.H. Lawrence, essentially. Right. Um, so he didn't help her with either of these, any of these problems, really. Right. Um, no. After the third or fourth visit, Nin didn't want to tell, you know, expose herself anymore in, in, you know, her internal psychology. So she tries to seduce him. Shortly thereafter, she does seduce him. Um and you know takes control of the whole situation with him right total now, transference by yeah, the way total yeah oh of course yeah yeah he's mm -hmm. a sort of a vaguely a father figure and because he's in control of the situation and she takes control of it now she yeah um <laughs> but again murdering every single rule in psychoanalysis oh yeah yeah it. because you can't not only can you not let your patient one-up you sexually mm -hmm. but the right. way that they one-up you sexually basically destroys the whole process of psychoanalysis to begin mm -hmm. with I mean, mm -hmm. for those who don't know, I mean, it's it's you couldn't go any worse as a psychoanalysis mm -hmm. than that. You right, know, it right. even comes up in the Sopranos between Melfi and and Tony because Tony wants to fuck her the whole time. Yeah. He's like, she's like, no, I can't. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, Allende didn't. Yeah. He, so, <laughs> OK, OK. And so she that... just like she she just like a stalking butler. She, you know, elevates. So I'm, I'm quoting Tool, by the way. The okay, whole yeah. "I will find a center in you, I will chew it up and leave." Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, <laughs> there yeah. You go. Patron mm -hmm. band of the show. That's two episodes in a row. Tool gets yeah, a shout out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah. 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 Now. Now, 1931, December uh, 5th, 1931. A big is made. One of the and there's many major events. This is a major event in her life. Robert Osborne, a lawyer friend of Hugo's, with, who has literary ambitions, introduces. Uh, Anais Tanin to Henry Miller. Oh, here we go. On their we first, go. <laughs> on their first encounter, after the first encounter, Nin says he's a man who makes life drunk. He is like me. Hugo said to her, "You will fall in love with Henry's mind, and I am going to lose you to him." Um, she said, "No, no, you won't lose me." Turns out they were both right. So, <laughs> and we're going to talk more about this, right? We have to talk about the Henry Miller episode. Um, I always had Henry Miller. I read some Henry Miller in I've read a fair amount of him. I read Black Spring, Tropic of Cancer, yeah, Air Tropic Condition Cancer. Nightmare. And he's he's ta he's a talented guy and 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 deserves to some extent his reputation. Um he is also I have come I I I made a couple a couple things happen to me doing this research. I realized what Nin was all about and sort of how, you know, both felt bad for her and also kind of despised her kind of came got a very high respect for her writing when she's at the height of her powers and also realized that i absolutely loathe henry miller as a human being yeah <laughs> like i would probably punch him in the face if he were like alive at middle aged right now he's despicable all right <laughs> so <laughs> we'll get into why and it's not because he's like uh, it's not because he makes life drunk and he's a fun guy. It's not why he's a terrible person. <laughs> um, okay. Now, when it's not long after they meet Henry Miller and Nin, where 
and Henry Miller is this poor writer. He doesn't hadn't hasn't had any success. He's not the Henry Miller that we know of now. Nobody knows who Henry Miller is. He's this American who's somehow in Paris for reasons that aren't even hundred percent clear. He doesn't have any money. Has no source of income. He's married to a woman who's in the United States, but he's left a family before that to be with that woman, right? And now he's in France for some reason. He meets Nin, and shortly after their meeting, within a month or two, Nin is paying for Henry Miller to live out of the allowance she gets from Hugo. So now Hugo is paying for Nin, he's paying for Nin's mother and brothers, and he's paying without knowing it for Henry Miller to live in total. Findom. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. yeah. 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 And actually, and, and there's an, even a point where Nin goes back to Hugo and says, you know, my allowance isn't really enough. And this is mostly because she's paying, she's paying for Henry Miller to have a lifestyle. Now, early on, she says, Henry Miller is the last person in the world that I would have sex with. Never going to do that. That's never going to happen. Of course, that's not true. That's one of those things that you sort of doom yourself to the opposite happening as soon as you say it. You know, it's like that's that'll never happen. That that means you're basically planting it in the future. Right. Um, talk. I want to talk a little bit about his marriage. So he's married to this woman, June Miller. Um, she's a Hungarian-American dancer. Um they they call it or referred to her as a taxi dancer, which isn't something that I'd ever heard of. Apparently, a taxi dancer is like a person you pay to give you a private dance. So probably this verges into stripping and vaguely maybe mm. yeah, into a little it bit has of light that sex element work. to it. Yeah, yeah. When they when they finally remake Taxi Driver, that'll be the sequel. That'll be the new <laughs> taxi taxi, taxi dancer. dancer. Yeah. Can you imagine if they ruin Taxi Driver? Like no. Travis, there are Travis some Bick films. Will be trans. <laughs> oh jeez. There there are some films that like like if they ever touch it. Like I have said, I will go on record. If they ever remake Jaws, I will be throwing Molotov cocktails in. <laughs> AMC's will be yeah it's over that is my MK Ultra trigger if my handlers listening just do that and I'll be your I'll be your guy for the news cycle don't worry I'll be the main character if you ever they remake Apocalypse now it's all over it'll be done (laughs) they'll make they'll remake Apocalypse now but it'll be like um during Iraq and we'll have some kind of like I don't know. It'll be no. Maybe it'll be in Ukraine. There we go. It'll be yeah, uh, yeah, you know, right, yeah. Right. Um, where where uh, Kurtz gets um, you know, Kurtz becomes a Vatnik, and then he like fights against the Ukraine. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> what are we talking about? I, I have no idea. Right. Yeah. yeah you know, instead of Kurtz, it'll be Strelkov would be like the the one that has oh to God. never mind, never mind, never mind. Okay. No, right. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put some storyboards together after the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just, somebody, just somebody DM Amanda Milius and see if she'll be yeah. willing to, to <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. read the screenplay. I'm sure. Mm. We had it's funny. You know what's funny, Kevin? You mentioned that. Because I think it was me and um who was it? It was, uh, it may have been me and my friend Goran on War Report podcast where we talked about like Amanda Millis like producing a story about Gibby and Motorola. <laughs> like, oh, and, but it'd be like the most pro, like the most pro Russian film in existence. It'll be like the Ukrainians are all a bunch of like Banderite Nazis and like Gibby and Motorola are, like the heroes, right? <laughs> and they get assassinated by the State Department. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. When... <laughs> Yeah, it um, reminds me of a stone toss burgers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, Russians. Russians? <laughs> what? Like what? <laughs> you know? Oh, this is so inside baseball. Uh, All right, yeah. this is good. But Brad, the, everything you said about Anais, uh, Anais Nin being yeah. 
this nerve center at uh, at the heart yeah. of the 20th century is mm-hmm. totally true. Yeah. Uh, and I think the timing of this is outstanding too, because she runs parallel to Crowley. She does. Uh, a little and bit, a she bit. has yeah. her own arch, wild, erotic, sexuality, forbidden craziness. So I think these episodes mm-hmm. are kind of, they're, they're sibling polycule. They're, yeah. they're yeah. related. So I <laughs> yeah. appreciate yeah. the timing. Why, it's very good. But maybe, yeah. Brad, if you could expand on the, the, the Henry Miller aspect of it. I mean, oh, yeah. Henry Miller becomes a huge linchpin of your life, but why do you hate him so much? And is not Tropic of Cancer sort of like a semi- embellished autobiography of his own life like he's yeah kind of, yeah you know, being poor I mean, a poor starving artist yeah blah, no blah, the, blah, the yeah. reasons the reasons that i hate him are there's a couple there's a handful of them one is he's a coward he's just a yeah. total coward and nin even says this about him like eventually when they do fall apart and their relationship kind of falls apart her point is like he is a small man he never stands up for anything or for himself he always just walks away from any kind of conflict or problem he's terrified of everything like he lives this like you know drunken i don't care about anything but as soon as anything actually gets difficult he he's oh, nowhere to oh, be I found i hate people like right? that i've known people like um, this. yeah he um, he's taking this money from Nin. Okay, whatever. You got to get money. You got to get money, I guess. But like, he knows it's coming from this guy, Hugo, and he's shipping his wife. It's just to me, like, how long can you do that for before you hate yeah. yourself? And he does it for years. Another thing is he's constantly taking writing directly from Nin, plagiarizing stuff that she wrote, putting it in his own work. Oh my God. And then negging her own, her writing. Like, like parts of Tropic of Cancer, Nin wrote fundamentally oh what yeah. yeah wow yeah. wow okay yeah. after mm. he read after he read her work on lawrence he said oh yeah i'm gonna write a book on dh lawrence yeah i'm going to i'm well i'll write one and it'll be a big deal because i'm i'm henry miller and then he stole other things from her too and and part of it like um when june shows up his wife shows up in in paris her and nin have a very weird relationship there's a sort of a rivalry where they're competing for henry and and june doesn't <laughs> your know wife for and your sure. side piece know each other yeah, yeah. they totally they're friends yeah. they hang out and they don't she doesn't june doesn't know if they're sleeping together but she kind of suspects they are and nin is obsessed with her has like a crush on her but like it never really gets sexually consummated because nin isn't actually a lesbian she has a few experiences but when it comes oh, she course, likes of course yeah. of course she likes the seduction of it yeah. yeah, she likes the seduction of it, but when it comes to actually doing it, it doesn't actually interest her. It's like and... most girls that say they're non-binary yeah. by nowadays. You know, they, they only have sex with men. They're yeah. only even vaguely curious into women. Yeah, 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 yeah. So is she? So... Is Anna Hesnin? Is she a vampire? She is this like be. a vampire woman? A little bit. A little bit. I'm getting a bit of a vampire. A vampire. I, yeah. I could yeah, be that I that bad. I watched the. I mean, I watched the Hunger. The night before last, oh. I've oh, heard yeah, this yeah. is My good. Mind. The hunger is it good? Yes, yes, yeah. Highly recommend uh, David mm-hmm. Bowie. Very aesthetic, fun film to watch. Yeah, it's a yeah. vibe. Put it on in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so, um, and then yeah. So the other reasons I don't like, <laughs> I don't witchy like woman. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like. I, I, I mean, yeah. Other than the f- stuff that he's doing, to me, is fundamentally immoral. It's the cowardliness, right? Like. 
when June eventually finds out that, um, oh, there's the other thing. So Nin is obsessed with June and she writes about June in her diaries. When Henry reads it, he says, that's the better description of June. You captured her better than I ever could. Can I use that in my own writing? What a cell phone, by the way, as like one of the yeah. greatest American writers of the 20th right. century. What a cell phone. My God. Right. Right, um, right, right. It's pathetic. Now, and then when June finally figures out that they are sleeping together, she's like, we're going to get a divorce. And she goes to him. She goes to Henry and says, she says, quote, now you've got the last chapter for your fucking book, don't you? And and Miller just dis dissolves into a puddle. He's just, oh, oh, no, I don't know. Like he just he, there's nothing to him. Like in the end, there's nothing whoa. to him. And that's the part I she can't. Pulls a Sylvia Plath right there. <laughs> right. Right. I See, I can't. have a letter to Henry. This was written. Oh, yeah, go for it. And um, I want to say, yeah, yes, this is 1942. Okay, so this is they'd known each other for about eight or nine years at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like where things get sour, if I recall. Mm. Um, so we're we're still writing at cost per cross purposes this morning. You say sadly that I do not believe in your capacity to take a job. Blah blah blah. But here's the spicy part. Uh, and for what? For me, how can you expect me to turn around and ask you to do what you uh, have spent 12 years proving to me you can't do? I get my integrity from doing repulsive things for a human resource for you. Can't, can't, uh, um, sorry, you can't do these things for another human being. Also, I haven't asked you to do anything for me, but for yourself. I've only given you what you wanted again and as always. And so she puts this in italics. Mm. What you desperately tried to get from me. Again, I am letting you be yourself. Choose your life. You're de you desperately tried to get from me. Again, I'm letting you be yourself. Choose your life. You did everything to prove to me you deep your deep resistance to life here. I can only envisage, uh, envisage your return as tragic for me. I have slowly made, I have to slowly make your conscience, thus rhythm between us, is broken because you asked too much. You set about to be true to yourself, to your wishes and dreams. And again, being true to your dreams is very important to her. Mm -hmm. This has been so superhuman a task, for I am now drained, weak, only ask for respite, peace. This is an italics. I feel broken. I mm. cry in the streets and I can climb. I can't climb stairs. I feel absolutely weak. Um, je ne pas plus. Today I said in the middle of the street in the passerby, no pudo mas. I want to shout it to the Spanish. I don't know why. No pudo ma, no pudo ma. I can't mm -hmm. do I can't do anymore. Uh then carrying on. Um, you made no effort to make it better. I know at times when you were doing the meaning of it, each whim, each rebellion was significant for me as a source of pain, but I couldn't stop you. I know you don't understand what has happened to me. I am being destroyed. But I, I know all my letters mean nothing to you. We now speak a different language. By sheer suffering, I have become merely a human being. All I want is tenderness and humanity. You become something else. If it pleases you to think it's a Buddha, let it be Buddha. I'm meaning like, I'm I'm like a Bodhisattva. I'm carrying, mm -hmm. and she's being melodramatic. She's like, I'm like a Bodhisattva. I'm carrying on the sufferings of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, my real self was in the fantasy stories. In the house of incest and fairy tales, I can't write these anymore. My devotion to human beings have killed me. The mother is finally murdered by the dreamers. For me, the nonsense and the dreaming and the madness are all alike. They're the way of killing me because I have served them with my life. So this is why I think her, even though her literary output is small, 
Mm-hmm. I would say that her journals and diaries take on a literary character. Oh, so sure. she is enacting the dreamlike state of being the mother to Henry Miller, but then Henry Miller impetishly and childishly protests and says, no, I'm going to go my own way. But really because he is a weak man, he cannot mm-hmm. go his own way. Right. And so it's, it's sort of like, um, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, she's struggling with this recognition that he is a weak man. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. she cultivated that relationship to begin she with. She did. She did. She so wanted. I mean, I think that you know, him being a weak man was appealing in a certain in a certain way, right? At first, yeah. and then when you realize what the implications are that a, that a weak man will just take everything from you over time, right? Will just suck you dry. And and then the the thing too that was important to her because she wanted to be a writer. I mean, there was two things. She at one point would talk about how her greatest desire was to be a sort of a mother muse. Yeah. lover that yeah. was what she wanted she wanted to be a great be be uh sort of merged with a great famous rich artist for whom she would be the muse and the mother and the lover of yeah. that was sort of her fantasy but again that's the electric that's the the musing of those different things to be a mother mm-hmm. that is also which in a way is is i hate to say it is very deep in the male fantasy mm-hmm. in, in a way to have think of it a mother you can fuck right like right. someone who is a maternal nurturing figure, but also has that se- element of sexual release. This is something, yeah. de- and, and as painful as it is to admit, this is something deep within the male psyche. That, that has, is a, yeah, it has an unconditional quality. Though. Yeah. You, yeah. It has an unconditional quality to it, right? Your mother loves you no matter what you do. You don't yeah. have to like meet her standards or whatever. Right, just, right. Right. So there's that part of it, right? It's it's all and she kind of wanted to play that. Not my mom. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Rest in yeah. peace, mom. <laughs> yeah. No, well, no, yeah, that's so, a different podcast, isn't yeah. it? Right. right, right. right. When we get to Freud, you guys gotta Kevin, go out on the clock. Yeah. 150 yeah, an hour. That's the after dark for the Freud episode. <laughs> yeah, really, right, right, right. But, right. but that's the thing, like her her constant role is like the madonna whore like that's Mm -hmm. that's the thing like she's sacrificing herself she's giving herself to henry miller she's this source of nurturing and comfort and and material existence but at the same time she also is a philanderer and Mm -hmm. she cheats and it's like very madonna whore right there oh yeah Yeah, they embody both characteristics because a lot of promiscuous women i said this before i said this in my mega variety uh podcast of content minded where the solo one where i'm like a lot of promiscuous women they do take on sort of like a maternal figure and a lot of her short erotica is about prostitutes and there's this one about um a, a madam who is like the mother of the prostitutes right um she takes on this maternal role towards men it's very sick like the madonna whore just runs right through anaiasin's up and uh, I think, are we getting close to House of Incest? Because we're going to get, we're getting there. Yeah. 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 One thing before I want to talk one or two, because to me, the greatest. But sin, Henry Miller is very important. Like, yeah. Oh, in yeah. Fact, her most important relationship by you, but besides your father, of course, yeah. is Henry Miller. Yeah. Now, one thing that's significant about it to me and why I, the, the, the chief thing that I hate him for is he ends up stealing stuff from literary work and ideas <laughs> from her and presenting yeah. them as his own. This is the part of me that just wants to crush him like a bug. Yeah. Here's an example. Um, this is later on. This is after they'd known each other some years. Um, and Lawrence Durrell comes into their orbit as well, who wrote the Alexander Quartet, great writer in his own right. Um, Henry Miller had wrote, written this thing called this ad, film adaptation, film treatment or something called Scenario. And um, 
Larry told Henry, this is from the biography, Larry told Henry and Anais's presence that the best part of his scenario was about, was quote, about the man oiling the mechanism in his chest, the astrologer scene. Anais glared for it was copied word for word from pages Henry insisted she eliminate from her own work. He wrote the film, but the ideas were mine, all of them. He only added Henry-like touches of asses, doves coming out of its skeletons, noise, and things I didn't like. And so I will see my ideas made popular by Henry and signed by Henry, the greatest piece of spiritual robbery I have ever seen. Meanwhile, he's taking money from her husband, right, to to survive. And Mm -hmm. it's just... I, I can't I can't abide it. I can't abide it, Kevin. Everybody is cucking <laughs> everybody else in this dynamic. This is yeah. a very strange situation. Yes. I yes. I do not approve. And you're right. Yeah. I did not know that uh Miller was a, a, a terrible plagiarist. I, did I didn't either. I well, didn't mm. I didn't occur to me. Yeah. Now mm. he didn't come he came up with some of I mean he didn't he wrote some of it, but a lot of the stuff he's stealing from it. And to me, if you're stealing you know, anyway. And it gets mm. into like artistic ethics, right? Everybody's stealing a little bit, but to just like go to somebody and be like, you should take that out of your thing and then you use it, right? Like that's just, you're a criminal. It's an artistic crime to me. To me. Mm. Anyway, um, okay. So uh, also in the um, early 1930s, kind of getting back to the biography, I'm all heated about Henry Miller now. I'm all pissed off. Um, <laughs> um Let's see. Uh, 1933. Okay. 1933. Nin has been in psychoanalysis for a few years, so she's mentally as healthy as can possibly be. Um, this is not true, obviously. Uh, somewhere between Henry Miller banging the hell out of her, June Miller tantalizing her, Hugo's mo- vacillating, ignorant, um, totally ignoring her and having violent appetite for her um and Allende breaking down barriers in Nin's mind her neurosis just goes through the roof right this is this is we've 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 put enough pressure on Nin's psyche that she starts to things start to crack in there I think um we don't quite have a nervous breakdown but we're starting to see it um there's things like uh Tropic of Cancer starts coming out here it doesn't come out in the United States until the 60s because it's banned because it's you know it's got obscenity or whatever um uh, Hugo pays for it to be published the first time. So the first time Tropical Cancer comes out, Nin's husband pays for it to be put, to be printed as a favor to, to Nin, right? Um, she, uh, she, around this time she goes, um, she also starts to have a relationship, a brief relationship with Antonin Artaud, um, very disappointing hmm. rendezvous in the same hotel room where she had a, she had a tryst with Allende. Friend of the pod, Anthony Artaud. Yeah, yeah. We did a very uh, well-received Artaud episode. We did. We did. Uh, right. Yeah. And I'm going to read a Adam little. Lehrer. I'm going to read a little bit from a, a short story. This is one of her better bits of fiction. Um, it's called Under a Glass Bell. It doesn't come out till 1944. She um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that process. But there's a story about her relationship with Artaud in here. Um, and it's cool. I just want you to get a sense of what her fiction is like, because a lot of the stuff we've read is her diary or essays and her fiction. Her fiction has often been called surrealism. Uh, it's sometimes taught as surrealism. And I think surrealism, it, I think different people have different definitions from a literary standpoint, what actually surrealism is. And depending on your definition, her fiction, particularly these stories in Under a Glass Bell can certainly fit. Um this is about this is from a story called Je suis le plus 
Malade de Surrealistes, and it's about Artaud. He was sitting in a deep chair in the corner of the room, his angular body struggling against the softness of the chair, looking for stones, stones to match the leanness and hardness of his bones, the petrified tautness of his nerves. Sweat was pouring from his brow. He did not wipe it off. He was sitting taut, with his vision burning in the pupil of his eye and the intensity of the man who committed suicide every moment, but unwilling to die alone and bringing all others down with him into his death. Unwilling to die alone and with his eyes murdering and condemning those who did not want to die, insulting those who smiled, moved away from death. There was a door at his right. He leaped away from my eyes and walked into the hothouse. I thought he was moved by his secret pain to vanish from us, and I did not expect him to return. When he reappeared, there was the scum of Ronal on his lips, and his gestures were slower. I am starting a theater of cruelty. And this is Artaud's words. Hmm. I am against the objectivity of the theater. The drama should not take place on a stage separated from the audience, but right in the center of it, so near to them that they will feel it happening inside of themselves. The place will be round like an arena, the people sitting close to the actors. There will be no talking gestures cries music i want scenes like the ancient rituals which will transport people with ecstasy and terror i want to enact such violence and cruelty that people will feel the blood in them i want them to be so affected that they will participate they will cry out and shout and feel with me all of us the actors and then he's not talking anymore this explosion this shattering of the being into ecstasy and terror was what pierre wanted to accomplish with his theater of cruelty and i wanted to follow him With all the fervor of my eyes, I said to him, I would follow him into all his inventions and creations. Nobody would follow him. When he stood up and shouted about his theater, they laughed. They laughed because each cell of the dream that Pierre projected was enormous, swollen out of the blood and the sea in his blood, the water of his body, his sweat and tears, his passion for the absolute. No one else believed in the absolute. No one else dared to explode to reach ecstasy. No one followed him. They laughed. And it goes on like that, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. I just she's got it's powerful. Um, and you know she's putting words in Arto's mouth, but I think they're reasonably accurate for towards his description of a theater of cruelty. But clearly, in her own voice, I think. Um, and you know, there's a number. There's a number of we'll, we'll get to talk more about this book, but I wanted to hit that Arto note just because we've covered him on the show. Mm. And again, Nin is constantly right against everything happening culturally, right? She's when this Arto things happens, she's also still sort of in a relationship with one of the first psychoanalysts in France, Arto, right? (laughs) Her husband, who is, you know, in touch with the financial centers of Europe. She's always right. She's always right in there. It's fascinating. This uh, furthers our thesis that at any given time, there are maybe (laughs) only about 25,000 actual people and that everybody else is just an NPC. (laughs) Uh, And I, I, yeah, Yeah. I don't care how that sounds. <laughs> she oh, she tried to. She tried no, to. She, yeah. tried to. she wanted to. Mm. She claimed that Gore Vidal wanted to marry her, but later on he would say that was like he's like, I don't know what she was talking about. I just wanted to be so friends. It that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Her yeah. affair with Arto was not very satisfying. Was Arto? No, he he mm. was not uh I don't know if exactly he was impotent or what the deal was when it came to her, but it wasn't it wasn't sexually satisfying. She was fascinated mm. with him as an artist, mm-hmm. and I yeah. think she thought he might fill that role where she could be the muse mother lover thing. And it just mm. sort of never, it never coalesced into that. Um, yeah. I, I'm yeah. not surprised. Knowing right. what we do about our toe. Yeah. Right. Right. So let me give you a little bit um, from her. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Well, okay. So around this time, 19, what, 1934, 1930. Yeah. 1934. 
Um, this is also where something happens that we're going to talk about in the after dark. Turn her father, her father comes back around into her life. He's been periodically trying to exert control and play games when she was a teenager. Um, Joaquin, her father, would say, like, we're gonna get, would write letters to Rosa saying he was gonna divorce her for negligence. Like weird, he was always doing weird power moves. Um, and this would be the you know, the big power move. And we're gonna talk more about that in the after dark. Um uh now here's where we start getting into House of Incest, is in the mid-30s. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Now I want to talk about one kind of other thing because she's getting, she's getting sort of sexually adventurous and there's a time, I think it's in 1934. Yeah. Um, af it's after the great depression. So the Nin Guler family is broke. Okay. So after the great depression, again, Hugo is involved in banking. If you're involved in banking in 1929, Things aren't going super well for you unless you just made a couple lucky bets. Yeah, yeah. Walk in the unless middle of the street yeah. on your way home. Yeah, unless yeah, don't you walk somehow on the sidewalk. Unless you shorted everything somehow, mm, like you're mm -hmm. not in good shape, right? Um, she also gets uh around this time, she's got involved with uh Otto Rank, her second psychoanalyst. Um uh <laughs> for a while, we'll get to it. Otto Rank tells Nin that she should be a psychoanalyst. And because there are no standards or practices, she would become for a while a psychoanalyst. But we're going to talk more about that. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think mm. it's hilarious that you would go to her for some kind of treatment, right? Um, um, okay, here, we're going to talk about House of Incest, but let me let me give this thing. Um, she gets pregnant, 1934. She believes it's Henry Miller's child. She's pretty convinced. Um, you know, and the question is, OK, well, what does she do? She bring the child to term. Uh, does she give birth and, you know, risk that poor Hugo will know that it's Henry's child? Right. Mm. Um, does she give up the child to say her mother to take care of or put it into an orphanage um, or you, you can know, guess what she does? OK, yeah, you yeah. can. Yeah. So <laughs> now here's the thing. She she. OK, so, OK, here's the other question. Does she get an abortion like we would think about getting an abortion? Not really. She goes and she gets scared. And so she doesn't want to go undergo the procedure. So the the what she calls the sage femme, which is basically the abortionist, gives her what Nin calls potions. They're abortificants, right? Yeah. And she's taking these. And for some reason, the pregnancy kind of keeps happening. And they're a little perplexed as to why she's taking these things, but it doesn't immediately, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's supposed to, you know, over some period of time, weeks or whatever, end the pregnancy. And it doesn't. Um, so right after she goes, this is even hard to talk about yeah. right after she starts taking the, the, the quote unquote potions, she goes. And for the first time she, in this weird, like thing she's doing in her head and living in the dream, she quote drinks Henry's sperm for the first time, which to her is a big significant moment. And then she goes to Otto rank her new psychoanalyst and does the same with him like immediately back to back. Right. So something weird is going on. She's literally just started taking potions to, to, to kill this child in her. And then she's going to conduct sex acts that she's never done before for the first time. And then, <sighs> yeah. In the sixth month, a little bit later, they give her an injection to induce labor because they're pretty sure that she's now had a, this now stillborn child. She manages to cajole for all of these all this happening she's going to give birth to a stillborn baby she manages to conjole all of the men in her life henry her husband 
Otto Rank and her cousin Eduardo to all be there as though she are giving birth. She's giving birth to all of the, the child of all of them. Wow. Right? Wow. And she says, oh. she says she's sort of laying there as she's giving birth to a child. She knows is not alive. She says all of this love coming back, uh, calling me back to life. Right. If, if you had to pick a picture of the, what young calls the terrible consuming mother mm-hmm. that destroys her, the, the Manny longhouse mother that destroys yeah. her own child. Yeah. Uh, her own children. Like that, that, that's no greater right there. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that all the men in her life just consented to it. Yep. And, and and it's the supreme act of love to destroy her offspring. That it's That's a- just, it's 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 satanic what can i say it's 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 there you go it's 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 awful now he around the same time she's writing the beginning she's writing what is actually i think her breakthrough creative her breakthrough non-diary work which is house of incest i'm going to read the first little bit of it and then we can talk more about as much as we want about the book because i want to pair it with what just happened this is the beginning of house of incest the book that will come out shortly after all this it was like yawning I loved the ease and the blindness and the suave voyages on the water bearing one through obstacles. The water was there to bear one like a giant bosom. There was always the water to rest on. And the water transmitted the lives and the loves, the words and the thoughts. Far beneath the level of storms, I slept. I moved within color and music as inside a sea diamond. There was no currents of thoughts, only the caress of flow and desire mingling, touching, traveling, withdrawing, wandering, the endless bottoms of peace. I do not remember being cold there, nor warm, no pain of cold and heat, the temperature of sleep, feverless and chillless. I do not remember being hungry, food seeped through invisible pores. I do not remember weeping. I felt only the caress of moving, moving into the body of another, absorbed and lost within the flesh of another, lulled by the rhythm of water, the slow palpitation of the senses, the movement of silk. Loving without knowingness, moving without effort, in the soft current of water and desire, breathing in an ecstasy of dissolution. I awoke at dawn, thrown upon a rock, the skeleton of a ship choked in its own sails. This is referred to as the birth passage of House of Incest. Yeah. And I just, the fact that she went through this whole thing with her weird pregnancy, childbirth thing, and then she's like writing in the, imagining herself being a fetus. It... Yeah, because House of Incest at, at its root is about um it, it it's about female sensuality in a way that is self-contained, in a way that is um the giving of oneself over to oneself, but it's also about relations to others in a very deep way to the where your own emotional state is reflected in the other and they are reflected in you, vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so there's always the sentiment that runs through. And the, of course she's writing half of this on hash, by the way. Oh um, yes. Yep, yeah. Yep. So the, the colorful metaphors that you would find given in, to her by her psychoanalyst. Yeah. Yeah, hash, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so the, the metaphors you'd find in sort of naturalist poets like Pablo Neruda, for instance, you know, Spanish naturalist, like it's very much to the seats, very much to the, um, the exposure of, female eroticism and sentimentality in a way that is poetic in a way like for example one of my favorite passages was the modern christ one um but let me read you this yeah. because it has parallels i think with a certain passage in her erotic shorty uh short story matilda 
So here she says, um, he has collected a box of paint from he never painted with a thousand books with pages uncut and they were covered with dust. His Spanish cape hung in shoulders of a mannequin. His guitar lay with strings snapped like long disordered hair. He sat before a notebook of blank pages. I chewed and chewed until it was deteriorating. Nothing thought or nothing. Every thought or impulse I have is chewed into nothingness. I want to capture all my thoughts at once, but then run in all directions. If I could do this, I would be capturing the nimblest of minds like a shawl of minions. I would reveal reveal innocence and duplicity, generosity, and calculation, fear and cowardice and courage. I want to tell the whole truth, but I cannot tell the whole truth. His skin was transparent like that of a newborn child. His eyes were green like Moses, like moss. He he bowed to Sabina, to Janine, to me, to meet the modern Christ who was crucified by his own nerves for all the neurotic sins. The modern Christ was whipping the perspiration which dripped over his face as if he were sitting there in the agony of a secret torture. Pain carved features, eyes open as if dilated by the scenes of horror. Heavy lidded with world heavy fatigue. In our writing, we're so skipping further. In our writings, we are brothers, I say. The speed of our vertigos is the same. We arrive at the same place at the same moment, which is some which is not so in other people's thoughts. The modern Christ said, I was born without skin. I dreamed once when I stood naked in a garden, and there was carefully and neatly peeled like a fruit, not an inch of skin left on my body. It was all um, gently pulled off. All of it, and then I was told to walk, to live, to run. I walked slowly at first, and with the garden was very soft, and I felt the softness of the garden so acutely, not on the surface of my body, not all through it. The soft, warm air and the perfumes penetrated me like noodles through every open, bleeding pores. All the pores open and breathing, the softness, the warmth, the smells, the whole body invaded, penetrated, responding every tiny cell and pore activated and breathing, even trembling and enjoying it. I shrieked with pain. I ran as I ran in the wind lashing me. So this is interesting mm -hmm. because this, this exposure, this extreme um, disunity between the body, the self and the other is there. And of course the very end, the famous quote uh, from house of incest. Let me try to find it here. Um, you know, the one where it's about, like, I experienced myself through the other, mm -hmm. try to find it. Um, yeah, it's important yeah. to note too, <clears throat> the title house of incest. It's not about, it's not about incest. It's people thought it was about like her relationship yeah. with her father, like the sexual relationship. It's not really like, yeah, yeah. It's far more surreal internal like a, okay, like a metaphor the thing i keep thinking about is how you know today it sounds very aspirational because she can afford a house <laughs> oh there that's true that's true. She's a, a bit classist and, yeah. and snobby yeah. now yeah so <laughs> this is the, the quote. Uh, <laughs> trailer home of incest or something no but it, it's mm. true it, it gets a little bit there mm. so she says if only we could all escape from this house of incest where we only love ourselves in the other if mm. only I could save you from yourselves, said the modern Christ, but none of us could bear to pass through the tunnel which led from house into world and to other sides of the walls where there was leaves on the trees, where water ran between besides pathways, 
where there was daylight and joy. We could not believe that the tunnel would open us to daylight. We feared to be trapped into darkness again. We feared to return once we came from, from darkness and night, the tunnel would narrow and taper down as we walked. It would be close around. It would close around us and close tighter and tighter around us and stifle us. It would grow heavy and narrow and suffocate us as we walked. So to me, it's very powerful how say you have a group of people imagine imagine some kind of like indie film for instance if you had this where a group of people are so intensely close together that they experience each other's emotions through one another mm-hmm. and the fear of going to the outside is mm-hmm. so overpowering that this group of people does not cross over into uh in existence without one another mm-hmm. i think it's it's a very powerful metaphor the incest is very much a sort of I remember one literary critic described it as um, it's like the self is doubled and you mm-hmm. are in love. You're so intensely in love with this picture of the other self, which is you that it's almost like an incestuous relationship towards mm-hmm. yourself. That's mm-hmm. the the metaphor of house of incest. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. I think a lot of communities, a lot of like a very uh, cult like groups and arrangements, even on the online world are kind of like this. You could, pretty much apply this passage to to anything of that nature. And yeah. uh, I, I think another thing too about House of Incest is that um, it's very, sorry, my cat is. No, it's very interesting how um, when she's writing House of Incest, how she's reflecting on all these relationships with men in her life and so forth. But it's very much about the self-affirmation of it. But to relate it to the short story she did called Matilda, mm-hmm. there's this one passage again, brought on by hashish, right? Mm-hmm. Where, Matilda is with um, these men on this boat. She's sort of like a traveling prostitute in some ways, but she's like a society woman. And uh, she's talking about how they have this erotic experience where they're all high together. And it's almost like their bodies merge into one another. And then after a while, the one character starts envisioning this Picasso painting of different women of different ethnicities having different features that are cobbled together, kind of like the later Picasso. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the, the permeation of the self into the other in a, in the space of literature is very fascinating here because mm-hmm. now it's like yourself is rendered open into the other in these peak erotic experiences. You could read Bataille eroticism into a lot of works of Nia Snip. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's fascinating. I, I feel that Mat- to me, Matilda is like probably the best of her erotic stories yeah. between Delta Vetus and the little, what's it called? Little bird. Little yeah. bird. I think. Yeah. I didn't read, I haven't read any of that. I read a lot of Delta Venus. It, yeah. Yeah. And this is, and I'm glad we're reading these passages because we, we are kind of painting her, her pathologies, but like it does. And her, her weird self indulges. It does turn into powerful writing, right? Yeah. It does. It does, she does yeah. transmute this into very, I was going to say that that was a hell of a piece of writing. It is. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to deny. Like you, you, you know, you can come into it. That's like, what's I, so frustrating. She's yeah. evil, but it's like, she's a good writer. Ah, right. You know? right, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. You also wrote about abortion too. This is from, uh, what's that? The, all these art hoes go on this website. Uh, what's it called? Um, <laughs> oh, thought, I don't know. The, um, what's it called? Um, thought catalog or whatever. Mar- oh, margins. Okay. Yeah. That's like one of these sites, um, Bert, like a thought, thought, burst or something um so this is what she wrote in your journal about abortion um the only wonderful moment and of course they're framing this is this is powerful this is self-affirming this is women's Mm -hmm. rights Mm -hmm. this is feminism right Right. so 
The only wonderful moment in all of this was when I was lying in a little cot in the doctor's office. Another woman came in. The nurse uh, pulled the curtain so I could not see her. She was made to undress and lie down to relax. Soon I heard a whisper. How was it? I, I, was, I reassured her, told her how I had not been ab- able to bear it without ether. So it would be nothing with uh, ether. She said, how long were you pregnant? Three months. I was only two months. My husband is aware. He doesn't know. He must never know. Then she says, I couldn't explain to her that my husband knew that my lover had to be deceived and made to believe I had no relations with you lying there whispering around um, about the pain. I had never felt such a strong kinship with women. Remember you have to realize why it's kind of like a sacrament to the Democrat party, right? Because it (laughs) brings women together. Right. So Mm. this is uh, notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the one I could not see or identify the one that was also lying on a cot filled with primitive fear and obscure sense of murder or guilt of all the unfair struggle against nature, an equal struggle with all the men made man-made laws against us, endangering our lives, exposing us to inexperienced maneuvers to being economically cheated and morally condemned. Women is truly the victim now between, Oh God, but beyond the help of her courage and aliveness, how much there is to be said against the ban on abortion. What a tragedy this incident becomes for women. All the women she is hunted down, really. The doctor is ashamed deep down, but falsely. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the doctor that's making exorbitant profits when abortion is illegal. I'm sure they're wow. they're they're heroes, right? They're right. heroes. I'm right. um, oh, right. the doctor. Yeah, I'm so grateful to you. So grateful that women moved in me so much. I wanted to know her. I wanted to pull the curtain and see her, but I realized she was all woman. So this woman that she can't see who is also having an abortion becomes a metaphor for all women, literally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the humility, mm-hmm. the thoughtfulness, the fear, the childlike moment of utter defenselessness. A pregnant woman is already being a being in anguish. Each pregnancy is obscure conflict that breaks not the break is not simple. You are tearing away a fragment of flesh and blood, adding to this deep conflict is the anguish, the question for the doctor, the fight against exploitation, the atmosphere of the underworld bootlegging. Abortion is made a humiliation and a crime. Why should it be? Motherhood is a vocation like any other. It should be freely chosen, not imposed upon. So not imposed upon women. So in the mm-hmm. one sense, she's saying it's this, this re- resoundingly emotional act of tearing away one's flesh and blood, and one's being. But at the same time, she just reverts to typical, like, you know, basic feminism of like, well, yeah, Yeah, right, 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 right. She has to, like, put this purple prose into the heroic nature of a woman having an abortion. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and this is and that that she were talking you're talking about that was her second abortion, and that yeah, was oh sorry that was her yeah, second abortion. yeah no and that's fine I just clarify bi- biographically that was a child that she believed to be Hugo's not Henry's yeah. and yeah. part of the reason she was having an abortion then was because she didn't want Henry to find out that she was sleeping with her husband yeah right and oh just, my god oh right. who anyway, was like yeah. graveyard <laughs> oh, oh man it's just so yeah. heavy and yeah. dark heavy, yeah. and yeah. difficult and yeah. i don't so, know how i feel yeah uh, i don't know so, that, it, that it's that's my job i'm gonna keep listening Brad. yeah yeah so okay listen and believe yeah. listen yeah. in yeah. lean in I'm, yeah I'm, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. so okay so let me get back on the biographical so after the first oh. sort of birth scene right and this this next one you're talking about there's this period in 1934 um, where Hugo sends Nin off to New York or agrees to mostly because he wants to get her away from Henry. This is the thing. Hugo knows but never states outright that Nin and Henry are sleeping together. They even for a while have an arrangement when Hugo's off on business because he travels for business a lot. He's like an international banker. He's figuring out how to invest people's money and whatnot. There is a time where he very he will very explicitly tell Nin exactly when he's coming home. 
so that if she's in a situation with Henry, they she can plan around it, right? And then when he comes home, he makes a lot of noise. It's one of these things where he's like, oh, well, I'm here at the front door, and then like noisily unlocking the door, and then like coming in slowly going up the steps. So she has a chance for him to not find out that she's having the affair that he knows she's having, right? Mm. And, and this goes on for years. He, he, he just sort of he just doesn't want to see it. He does this thing that I think is buddy. I'm home right. to enable our codependency. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, now he, he does the thing where like he is so in love with her that he he's blinded by it to the point where he's so in love with her that she must be pure. And so she would never do anything to hurt him. So he never allows it to enter like his prefrontal cortex that she's doing yeah. this, right? Because that would destroy so much of his image of her that like he literally can't cope with it. So he just constantly keeps it subconscious, but really knows that it's going on on some level. Um, now, 1934, he goes, she goes to New York. She ends up being over there with Otto Rank, who's her second psychoanalyst, who she's also sleeping with, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, um, he's and this guy's a big deal too. He wrote um, apparently the uh, two chapters in Freud's interpretations of dream, interpretation of dreams. Like he's a big, he's a heavy hitter for sure. Um, well, he, he wrote Art and the Artist, and he wrote, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. yeah he wrote um, his other work about beyond psychology, which became very, yeah. He's like people call him Freud's hire, basically. Yeah, yeah, young, yeah. you know, young. What happened with Freud? And young. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So how dare you? You betrayed me. Yeah. You were the chosen one. <laughs> you had ideas of your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. yeah. So she gets to New York. She and she basically sort of stays with Rank, but she also goes on this whole like sexual escapade adventure of her own. She starts up her own psycho and um, she starts taking patients as a psychoanalyst and is actually quite popular. It's mostly upper middle class New York women that she's treating. Can her, you imagine her poisoning the minds of oh these God. bourgeois upper middle class New York women? Yeah. Like, a, you, yeah. I just can just imagine that. Here's a very interesting here's a very interesting note. One of her patients is uh where what is her name? Laura Archera, who would later marry Aldous Huxley. Whoa. This is what I mean. <laughs> it is this concentric, these these ever tightening, mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. it's like an ever tightening Venn diagram of characters. Yeah on this yeah. pod it, and yeah. it's like kanye I, exposing that trainer guy <laughs> right yeah. a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and then you're like wait he trained yeah. him and him and what him and him and right. Mac miller and right yeah yeah speaking of that the famous celebrity trainer guy that has some weirdo um mm -hmm. new world order type of ties also um with a certain other ethnicity kanye has been calling out late, lately did you know that anias <laughs> Did you know Anais Nin knew Dr. Feelgood? The yes. The kind of yes. celebrity. This is and, around this time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that gave him all amphetamines, yeah. basically. Her, her nothing and, ever changes. Her and Hugo. Yeah, nothing changes. Her and Hugo were responsible for him coming to the United States in World War II. I don't Whoa. know the exact details, but like they were instrumental in him coming to the United States. And America. that domino led to basically doping up JFK. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. Right? Yeah. She's right there. Also, in this time, this 1934 time, she has an affair with Norman Bell Geddes, who was oh, designed God. designed the IBM Mark I computer case, right? So she's it's just weird how she's like what this fluid that fills going in on. the early, yeah. 20th, early 20th century. She's like Very the pass around girl to the rich and famous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. there is a bit yeah. of that. Well, yeah. we're going to get to her next uh, year on season three, uh, artofdarkpod.com, Maryland. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, that's gonna be a big episode. I yeah. cannot wait. Speaking yeah. of celebrity pass around girls, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now she she goes back to France, in 1935. <laughs> um, Doorknob girls, everyone gets a turn. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right, right. Um, she when she goes back to France in 1935, this is where she gets the idea that she's gonna have to print her own stuff. Like she's like starts to dream that this is gonna happen, but it doesn't quite happen yet. Um. There is this time. Um, so I'm going to kind of blast through a couple things between 1935 and the sort of World War II era. Um, late 1937, she does eventually buy a, a printing press and she will eventually start pressing. She does also picks up this guy who becomes one of her what she calls children. Henry Miller is another one of her, quote, children. Mm. These men that she basically takes care of both sexually and financially Oh my God. with with yeah. Hugo's money. And. It's this guy named Gonzalo More, who's a half Scottish, half Peruvian Indian, uh, a lazy communist and a self-described printer who is married to a woman named Helba, who used to be a dancer, but is now too ill to actually dance. So this becomes another one of her lovers for several years. Um, And this is in the 1935, 1936 era. Now, World War II happens. Oh, okay, So. Partly what happens to in some of these travels, she pays Henry Miller to come along, but like on a separate boat so that nobody knows that they're going together, um, which is just weird. Uh, Man. <laughs> and she will often That's... like I think for a while she had Otto Rank and Henry Miller were both in New York at the same time. But Hugo had sent her to New York to get away from Henry Miller, to get him away, get her away from Henry Miller. Right. So she just she just takes Henry's money and gives it to Henry or takes Hugo's money, gives it to Henry and he comes along anyway. Right. Um, anyway, 19, um, I want to read before we get into the world war two era, cause this is where things really change creatively and in her career. Uh, I want to read the last letter from Henry to Nin. We read that great letter from Nin to him. Let's look at 273. This is again, I'm pulling this from the bear, the bear biography, but this is, uh, this is a letter from Henry Miller. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, January 15th, 1943. And this is one of the last times they talk for a while. He kind of comes back into her life, um, but later on, but he says to her, the one obvious thing, which you refuse to admit to yourself is first, your lack of faith in yourself. Second, your lack of faith in others. Finally, I come out here to stand on my own legs. And though I drew on you less, it is at this point, you crack up at this point, you cry out too much, too much. I've given up everything. Right. So Mm. he's been he's been sucking her dry for more than a decade at this point and she starts to push back what a prolific himbo behavior right Right. there like my god like right have some dignity (laughs) exactly exactly you're dumb no man no man you just sleep on the couch whatever it takes no and this and this (laughs) is the thing in 1943 he was making enough money to support himself Oh yeah, that's this point because he wrote yeah. Tropic of Cancer around this right. time, didn't he? Right, yeah, and he was selling yeah. good, well in Europe, and he's gaining a reputation, and yeah. so he could have he could support himself, but he kept taking the allowance anyway. There was a while when he was becoming a literary name that he asked her for more money. He said, "Now that I have a literary reputation, I have to go to these parties and things, and I need more money." And it's like, are you ki- like, are you kidding? More money for to support the literary superstardom that you got from stealing my work, and now you want <laughs> money from me too? You know what I mean? Oh Just like God, this is why a, I hate him. This mwah, is why I want to punch kiss. him. This is why I, I want to crush mwah, him. Like a shameless, beautiful. Yeah, but they deserve each other in a way. Yeah, when you and really they do. Think about it's it. True. Like, it's true. It's you know? true. Um, yeah. 
Okay. Now, uh, 1940, that abortion happens that you talked about. Um, and around the same time is when uh, Nin and Hugo, or sorry, Nin and Henry get hooked up with this collector named Barnett, uh, Barnett Reuter, a New York rare book dealer. They, they'd moved to New York basically because World War II is kicking off, right? So they'd gotten out of, they'd gotten out of Europe and ended up in New York. Um, they get hooked up with this rare book dealer who supposedly... F- in the name of a certain collector who did wanted to remain anonymous, they start paying Nin and Henry Miller to write erotica, like by the page yeah. erotica for person for a personal private collection. It was probably actually Ruder. It was probably actually going for Ruder was probably keeping it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, he would and and um, yeah, so the so the erotica that got published later under Nin's name was mostly stuff that she had originally written for this under this commission, apparently. Um, and it was interesting because every time he would at, at least at first when she would send a story, the the feedback would come back like less poetry, more sex. Like the the collector just wanted like mechanical descriptions of people having sex. And she would have these like elaborate, like surrealistic, like adventure, like what you were talking about with the Hungarian adventure. And like this collector's like, I just want to read about people fucking and sucking. Like what is going on? There's nothing there. Like it's, (laughs) let me actually try to find the passage. Um, Here we go. Here we go. Martinez, a proven aristocrat initiated her to opium. He bought mm-hmm. his friends there to smoke at times. They spent two or three days there uh, to the world, to their family, away from the world, to their away from their families. The curtains would keep closed. The atmosphere was dark, slumberous. The shared Mat- they shared Matilda among them. Wow, mm-hmm. shocker. Right. Um, but but it, it does describe, I think, a beautiful um, description of the sort of limited experience of eroticism so i can't bash it too hard mm-hmm. even though it's not to me it's not it's not scrimblo you know it's not yeah. my my cup of tea <laughs> the opium made that well although if i had never mind never mind, never mind. um but multiple guys like come on yeah, um yeah. anyways the opium made them more voluptuous than sensual they could spend hours caressing her legs one of them would take one of her breasts another would sink her his kisses into the soft flesh of her neck, pressing her with the lips only because the opium heightened every sensation. A kiss could throw shivers throughout her body. Matilda was would lie naked on the floor. All the movements were slow. The three or four young men lay b- back among the pillows. Lazily, one finger would seek her sex, enter it, lie there between the lips of the vulva, not moving. Another hand would seek it out, would out seek it out too content itself with the circles around the sex seek another orifice one man would offer his penis in her mouth she would suckle it very slowly every touching magnified by the drug sorry every touch magnified by the drug then four hours they might lie still dreaming erotic images would form again martinez saw the body of a woman distended headless a woman with the breasts of a belenese woman the belly of an african woman the high buttocks of a I can't say Gamerwood woman, Gamerwood woman, uh, and N word S. All this confounded itself into an image of a mobile flesh, a flesh that seemed to be made of elastic. The taut breast would swell towards his mouth, and his hand would extend towards them. And then, after a part of the body would stretch, become permanent, hung over his her his own body. The legs would put into an inhuman impossible way as if they were severed from the woman to leave the sex exposed open so imagine like stretching so far that 
Yeah. If one had taken a tulip in the hand and opened it completely by force, this sex was also mobile, moving like rubber as if invisible. Hands stretched it, curious hands that wanted to dismember the body to get to the interior of it. Then the ass would be turned fully towards him and begin to lose its shape as if to draw as if drawn apart. Every movement tended to open the body completely until it would tear. Martinez was taken with a fury because other hands were handing this, handling this body. He would half sit up and seek Matilda's breast. And if he found a hand on it or a mouth suckling it, he would seek her belly as if they were still the image that haunted his opium dream and then fall lower upon the body so that they could kiss her between parted legs. I wonder what that's a metaphor for. <laughs> Matilda's pleasure in caressing the men was so immense that their hand passed over her body and fallen with her so completely continuously that she rarely had an orgasm. She would only become aware of the fact after the men had left, she awakened from her opium dreams with her body still restless. And then of course this is, um, you know, you could say that there's a Shibayak sort of images with all the hands coming together in mm -hmm. creation, but it's in this opium dream, it very much describes the sort of permeability of sexuality mm -hmm. in a very poetic manner. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, and in this opium dream, it's it's like um, again, Bataille talks about this as well. Um, and it, and it, while well, he has a lot of fucked up erotic short stories as well, such as mm. the mother one, but uh, mm. you know, but it, it is it is that really struck me because it does have a lot of philosophic themes with the erotic experience itself transgressing the limitation between one's body and and the other in the self. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. No, yeah. it's it's powerful. It's striking. And... And mark this episode as explicit. Yes, yeah. yes. I think yeah. you might make sure you do that. Well, it was yeah. going to be. I mean, if you write it, do you right. talk about? Oh, by the way, the not... ending Matilda hmm. is about he, her meeting a Indian serial killer. That is before the cops come in this like opium den is about to slit his knife into her. You know what? So there yeah. you go. Yeah. It turns into a White Chapel album. So powerful. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Powerful. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. She's writing that. So think about for the, the next few years of this biography we're talking, think that she's writing that stuff sort of first thing. That's her stream of her personal stream of income is writing this stuff. And the collector doesn't really like it, but keeps paying for it. Right. Very yeah. weird. Um, <laughs> during the war years, they're in, in the United States. Hugo actually starts to kind of get back and he starts to, to, to reignite his artistic side. And he starts doing engravings. Some of these engravings yeah. show up in Nin's books of cities of interior, cities of the interior books. And they would they he, he would have his own shows like he actually did pretty well. He was covered by Vanity Fair at some point in the 1940s. Mm. And it's interesting because Nin had always like when he like sort of lost his creative side or didn't spend any time on it when he was you know really, really um, working to be a banker, the best banker he could be, you know, and make a lot of money. She despised that he was no longer a poet. And then when he takes up this engraving and starts to become moderately successful, or at least the beginnings of being successful, she also despises that because she's yeah. had no real success yet, right? So she she kind of, she always does this. She wants things both ways. She wants him to be this rich, successful artist, but not if he's going to be more rich and successful than her, right? And he is um, a very talented surrealist engraver as well. He is. Like, the, the engravings yeah. are great. A lot of them are great. Yeah. Like, especially like the the ones that I found in the book, there was the, the, dark, the, the dark print ones, which I believe mm. they may have been mesotint, if I recall, but mm. yeah. But the yeah. engravings, yeah, the, the actual engravings are done very well. Um, yeah. Very expressive as well. You yeah. Know, very, I, very common to like the sort of engravings of a 
Picasso, like modernist engraving. So, yeah. yeah. Right. So um, now 1942. Now, one thing that comes out of these engravings, he makes uh, his first gallery show. He he sells he makes like 200 bucks, which that's in the 1942. I don't know. Modern dollars. That's like it's at least two grand. It might be more like four grand. Um, mm-hmm. And he gives this money to Nin to buy a printing press. Right. She buys a printing press. She buys every tray of Bernard Gothic light type she can find. And she's going to she's set out with Gonzalo, her lover, who was a lazy printer of in his own right. And her cousin, her gay cousin, her that she has a flirtatious relationship with. They're going to print copies of Winter, the Winter of Artifice. Winter of Artifice was a book that she'd had published in small run in France. But with the war going on, it's sort of lost. That printing sort of lost mm-hmm. to history. Um, and now. While that's happening, so she's working on printing Winter of Artifice. I want to make another note about something somebody else she knew. She got help from someone to t- start typing her diaries. Um, somebody typed up 60 volumes of them, and that somebody was Virginia Admiral. Does anybody know who Virginia Admiral is? Mm. Robert De Niro's nope. mother. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Taxi dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah now here's crazy. another connection that's great. Robert De, Robert De Niro, our Robert De Niro, his father is Robert De Niro Sr., who is a painter of some renown in his own yeah. time, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, Robert De Niro, um, there's a guy named, a poet named Robert Duncan, who is a friend of Nin's, um, and I think Nin might have introduced him to Robert De Niro. Robert Duncan showed up in a previous episode we did on PKD, because later on, Philip K. Dick and Robert Duncan would be roommates, right? Whoa. Nin, yeah. I'm pretty sure this part is true. Nin introduced Robert Duncan to Robert De Niro Sr. That the introducing might not be right, but everything else is right. Robert De Niro seduces Robert uh Robert Duncan seduces Robert De Niro Sr. and breaks up their marriage shortly after the birth of Robert De Niro Jr., the actor. Right. Whoa. <laughs> so oh, you get this God. psycho Nin is the psychoanalyst of of Aldous Huxley's wife. She's uh, you know, she's instrumental in breaking up the the marriage of Robert De Niro's parents. She's she's best buddies with the 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 a man who would later be the roommate of Philip K. Dick. Like it 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 almost doesn't even make sense. Yeah. <laughs> how many connections yeah. there are, right? Yeah. And she's at this point, she's a not a very well-known writer. She's had a little bit of attention, but she's not she's not the NAS Nin that we know, right? She, like she's in the scene getting away yeah. with it. <laughs> right. She's in the scene. She's not like known by the public. Right, know? right, right, right. Um, now, uh, let's see. First, I got so excited about that. I lost my place. Oh, she, uh, she, <laughs> um, oh, she gets this insult. One of her lovers gives insults her and I want to read it. Cause I think it's kind of great. Um, in the meantime, <clears throat> she yielded a moment of desire. She, quote, yielded a, to a moment of desire for this guy, George Barker, whom she compared to the hapless Waldo Frank, her least satisfying lover to date. Barker, quote, made love like a cataleptic, propelled by acrobatic excesses, jerks, and spasms without orgasm. <laughs> worst, worst, he talked throughout, and what he said stunned her. You, Anais, will always be erotica, no matter how you present yourself as printer, <laughs> writer, analyst. It's useless. You yeah. are an erotic symbol, and people will always treat you as such. They will always seek to enjoy you, never to help you. You, a psychoanalyst, <gasps> I don't believe you know a word about it. You're going to practice witchcraft. 
Whoa! <laughs> totally 100% right base. That's so metal. <laughs> Power chords up and down. It's so heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Intense. <laughs> now, 1944, Winter of Artifice, she prints. It does okay. 1944, she prints um, her own short stories um, under a glass bell. This book that I referred to, I read the Arto bit about Arto and comes out. And she um, she brings she sort of brings it to one of Hugo's gallery showings. And it surprisingly is a kind of a hit. She did, I think, a print run of like 300 and people really like it. And in fact, it finds its way into the hands of Edwin uh, Edmund Wilson of The New Yorker, who at that time is like the number one literary critic in the United States. He's like the yeah. most referenced literary critic of that time. And he likes it. So now her career has like in in to like. In a cool way, like she printed the book herself, like physically printed the book herself on a printing press, set the type and like put all the, you know, stitched it all together. She did it all herself. It's super DIY because she's being rejected left and right by everybody always up till now, pretty much, you know, Um, nine times out of 10, she tries to get something published. It's rejected and she does her own thing and it ends up in the hands of Edmund Edmund Wilson, which as a self-published writer myself, I'm like, that's that's a little bit aspirational to me. Like, I think that's awesome. Um, and Under a Glass Bell is good. Like, it's legitimately good. I, enjoy, I, I had not read it yeah. before. I enjoyed reading it. It's not all hits, but like a lot of it is hits. It's, it's more hits than misses by far. And it's very strange. It's very evocative. There's great imagery in it, um, which is it's it's strange. I read Ladders to a Fire, uh, Ladders to Fire, first, which is the first novel in the tetralogy that comes out later. And Ladders to Fire is interesting because it's almost disembodied. It's almost all conversation and um, interiors. Like you mm. don't you don't see you don't get images of where you are in space or descriptions of item of objects or anything. It's all internal and in dialogue. And then this book has these like lush image, like lush descriptions of houseboats and street scenes and this this story called Ragtime, which is like three or four pages about that like anthropomorphizes the city and the rag picker going through the city and picking mm. through the junk of the city and rejecting anything that's whole and, and only taking that which is broken and can be reconstituted. Like it's really good. Um, I was super, I was super impressed by it. Like if people haven't read Nin, this is a good, it's a short, it's kind of a good place to start. You don't have to, it's not, it's not particularly erotic in any way. Like if that's not your thing, if that's not what you're looking for, this would be, I think a good place, a good, a good bit to read. Um, yeah. So she, this now 1944, this book coming out, Edmund Wilson liking it, who she later tries to sleep with, but doesn't Hmm. work out. Um, she tries to sleep with everybody, basically. Um, whoa, yeah, whoa, <laughs> surprise, <It's shocking>. uh, <laughs> Um, uh, there's this whole period too that we could have talked about, we're not going to. 1944, she has this whole period where she's picking up these Haitian men on a diplomatic mission and sort of just like there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of relationships we're skipping over, let's say. Now, uh something does happen after this under a glass bell thing because. Despite the fact that there's not money coming in for her writing, she is now, I mean, it's a big deal for a New Yorker critic to hail you, right? At that time, to, for a New Yorker critic to write an article that says you're legit. And this is the other thing. 
Nin could not handle criticism like unless it was 100% positive. She did not want to hear any like if you said nine good things and one bad thing, the one bad had, thing would be yeah, yeah. She had no time for you. She did not want to hear it. And so this Edmund Wilson thing was pretty much unequivocally unequivocally good and set set her off. That and that literally that did more for her than all of the psychoanalysts <laughs> analysis that she had gone under for the last like 20 years or whatever, right? Um it actually made a difference. And you see her sort of entering what I called her quote unquote mature nin. Now when I say mature yeah. mature uh one way that I think we know she was mature now is this is around the time where she basically told Henry Miller to go go pound sand. Like, it's over. Yeah. I'm not sporting you anymore. We're done. I don't need any men like you in my life. And Henry Miller is posting the soy jack. It's over. Right. It's over. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, right. The, the, right. Ch- the chud jack. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, how else we know is around this time, she starts to prey on young men. It's 1944. She's like 40 years old or 1945 this really kicks off she's Did you she's just say she starts 42 to years prey old. on young men yeah she's yeah. okay I've, I've known right. promiscuous older childless okay. women like this it's yeah. a very common yeah, yeah. A, like i said in my podcast one time like you know, there's almost a sadness there mm-hmm. in a way like yeah. there's a sadness there's sort of a an attempt to reconcile what they've lost mm-hmm. they sort of take on the characteristics of younger women um Anais Nin is also in film and theater, um, mm-hmm. while well, film and photography, which I I have a passage about, but we'll get to that. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, she's in Maya Deren films and in Hugo, excuse me, yeah. films that Hugo makes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was give you this one anecdote, but it's not the only one about her and younger men. She's forty two years old. She meets this eighteen year old student from Yale, um, and basically tries to convince him to drop out of school and like come quote live in the dream with her right um yeah yeah um she runs into a number of boys like she runs through a number of boys like this until she meets gore vidal she meets gore vidal when he's 20 years old right she's in her (laughs) 40s um and they would become actual longtime friends and he would be like a supporter and he would be part of um he would be part of her quote what she called her underground and we're gonna get to what the underground was um uh but he had no i mean he's a gay man he's like a he's like a completely gay man right yeah. no interest no interest in women never really did you know you no wonder you hated these. norman mailer <laughs> like, right? <you> know? <laughs> right. Uh, right did you see right. that uh that was on um was it what well, what show is that tonight show where they had at each other um i that, have seen that yes that yeah. was amazing the yeah, way they yeah. just shredded each other like yeah, yeah it was incredible yeah. um <laughs> but, you know then of course you know gory vidal famously um having his frenemy status with uh william f buckley mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know oh, it's a you call me a fascist again i'll knock your goddamn head back right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah yeah no they're they're he's an interesting figure and he's another yeah. guy who's in a lot of places he's another little kind of guy like a force gump kind of thing going in the 20th century where yeah. he just sort of shows yeah. up and you're like oh gore vidal is in this scene somehow um yeah yeah um Around this time, too, she starts writing uh, the first books in The Cities of the Interior, which is these five kind of interconnected novels that would come out, um, you know, one after another. Um, Let's see. Oh, she also we didn't we talked a little bit about Dr. Feelgood. It's important to remember that during this period in the 40s, she is high as a kite on Dr. Feelgood's special and probably mostly amphetamine cocktails. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's like, why is it? Why am I so productive and full of life? 
that's because you're addicted to speed. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, so, you know, take it. Yeah. Take it. Take it one day off and see how you feel. Um, and then but this gets us right up to the next important uh, moment. Next fate. This is like the next big chapter of her life. 1947. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of passage, a passage about her reading Rupert Pohl, this guy named Rupert Pohl. All right. Um, and this is like maybe uh, maybe the most important relationship in her life. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, he was 28. OK, that's important to know in 1947. And she would have been 44 um, unemployed and newly divorced from uh, a, an aspiring actress. He was stunningly handsome with the finely chiseled facial features and slim muscular body found more frequently in Greek statuary than human beings. He was also painfully shy and socially insecure, awkward and at ill at ease at this party. He spent most of it sitting on a small sofa talking to Aeneas. When he learned that she had never been west of northern New Jersey, he described the landscape and sky of Colorado, New Mexico, and California. She discovered that he was full of aphorisms, uh, mysticism, pacifism, Krishnamurti. Rupert believed daily life in New York was imbalanced, and as he was earthy and wanted to return to the West and a, quote, better balance between body and spirit. Danger, she told the diary that night. He is probably homosexual. Now, hmm. let's talk about Rupert Pohl a little bit more, because Rupert Pohl Again, we see how he she Nin's connected to everything. Rupert Pohl is the step grandson of Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, Whoa! And yeah, so anyway, just how connected she is to everything. Not long after they meet, Nin basically runs away to California with him. She's still married to Hugo, but this initiates years basically almost right up to the end of her life in 1977 what she would call the trapeze where she lived both in california and new york lived in california with rupert pole and lived in new york with hugo and um they both quote unquote didn't know about the other one right now how much they knew and when they knew bullshit i call bullshit yeah no way yeah yeah. Maybe she was like the uh Jis Lane of her day. Right. Um, oh, could be. I don't know. No, could I, be. I don't know. That's yeah, not... yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a little that's a little extreme. That's yeah. very extreme. Uh, yeah, but uh there is the younger men you never weird, know. Yeah, yeah, true. You never yeah. yeah, I mean, and she does seem to always be on the scene here. Yeah, yes. very, very yeah, yeah kind of like Jis Lane, yeah. Yeah, yeah just yeah. like old yeah. old Jizzy. Good yeah. old Jizzy. <laughs> You look pretty good in that in that bikini <laughs> yeah. photo, but never well, mind. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. she's she is my most problematic wood. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 Uh, now here's I'm gonna give you a little bit about a little bit about she she's Nin is in a different psychoanalyst at this point. Somebody named Doctor Staff. Anyway, there'll be one more. Um, Staff asked if Rupert was a good lover. This is what frightened um, Nin the most, she admitted, for she thought of him the most potent lover she had ever had. It was the very quality in man that she she had learned to fear and mistrust because of her father and Henry, both of, both of whom evinced faithlessness she felt was due to extremes of potency, right? They're so potent mm. that, of course, they're going to cheat. It was what had caused her over the years to turn to less and less potent men and finally to homosexuals. Dr. Oh. Staff asked yeah. if perhaps Rupert's healthy sexuality represented a return to a kind of a normality she had always lacked. In essence, a return to life. Yes, she agreed. Life again. Life. Right. So she is 
uh, despite her like still doing insane things, she does seem like she's got a little bit. She's, I mean, she's in her mid forties. She kind of sort of understands her motivations now to some degree, I think. Um, and yet she continues this. She continues. She's referred to as in her Wikipedia page as a bigamist. Uh, and <laughs> she does get pregnant with Rupert's child. All right. Uh, this leads to abortion number three. Okay. Um, yeah. This abortion is paid for by Gore Vidal and kept secret by. Oh, um, of course, because Gore yeah. Vidal being the uber uh, leftoid of right. his day. <laughs> it's just there you go. That's a symbolic right. act for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because he's never going to be involved in one. Right. Because he's he's so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like Lena Dunham saying, uh by the way, there is a Guardian article, Gurion art, Guardian. I, I'm not going to make that stupid joke. Uh, the Gurion. <laughs> um, there's this Guardian article where um, they said before Lena Dunham, there is an ISN. That's the title. That's the title. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So you know how like Lena Dunham said that, uh, you know, because she had a hysterectomy by choice, right? She's like, uh, you know, I never had an abortion. I can't get pregnant, but I wish I did. So it's sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah. I wish so, I did. Yeah, it's strange Vidal, to say. Yeah, yeah it's sort yeah. of like Gore Vidal being a gay man and yeah. uh, oh paying for an abortion. Oh, my God. Um, you think okay. you think this was modern? You think all of this is right. just the last 20 years? No, no this, this is 1940s. Yeah. This culture yeah. war shit's yes. been going on for yes. a while. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a big point of the Crowley episode. Yeah. That, yeah. I think it's yeah. only because of the wars, World War One and World War II, pretty much sort of yeah. and stymied everything because every, all yeah. that stuff kind of feels farther away, but yeah. it's really just a continuation. And then yeah. of course the boomers making their uh their adolescence and their young adulthood seem like this total refounding. Yeah. But of course yeah. it wasn't, it was just a continuation. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, even, yeah. even like um, with Anais Nin, um, Oh, what was I going to say? Like with, with <laughs> like being an older woman, like that is also nowadays a current culture war thing about the sexual evolution. How dare a, like a man go with a younger woman. And it's like right. the, the tragedy of, and this is such a cliche point that's been, you go anywhere, right? Go to, go to like Lotus Eaters video, you know, like go anywhere. But it, it is a true point in that, you know, the tragedy of the modern like post-sexual evolution after the orgy society is that women demand that men um, destroy their own sense of a much older form of masculinity. But women in turn do not like this. Same with Anais mm-hmm. Nen. She loves uh, gay men or borderline gay men or very demure type of men who aren't the ideal masculine figure they're more of like the you know literary Mm -hmm. um effeminate in a way always wanting mommy Mm -hmm. but the only time she like really gets her rocks off like she really like achieves like peak nirvanic orgasm is with manly men so that's the tragedy of it right yeah right rupert pole is rupert pole is initially the draw and the reason she's willing to climb into the trapeze which means a, a decade of lies and forgery and yeah. embezzling stuff from her the only reason she does it is because the sex is so good that she cannot pull herself away from it right <laughs> dick got like, her acting strange yeah, yeah seriously yeah. like she has moments where she's like i know what i'm doing to hugo but i can't not do this like i have yeah. to do this right and it's literally just about the sex at least at first but but then if you analyze her whole life you can start to see how and i hate to say it a lot of uh promiscuous women who have histories of being abused you would start to see that they can't he she can't really emote besides her body. 
Mm. Her body becomes the site of all emotion, especially towards men. Right, right, right. She can't give anything besides her body. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So she's living this thing. She's doing this thing. She's living in, she's six, basically, you know, it varies a little bit, but it's six weeks in New York, six weeks in California. Each one she has, for each one of them, she has an elaborate set of lies about what's going on in the other place, right? So in when she's in New York, she'll tell Hugo she's got to go out to California where she's living in this sort of cabin in the woods where there's no telephone, but so she can focus on getting the diaries ready to publish. She has to Ru- return some videotapes. Right, right. Yeah. She tells she tells Rupert in California that when she's in New York, she's just kind of staying with friends and that she has a job working for this magazine that she has to be there to do editorial work for, right? And that or and that she's working on she, you know. Rupert knows she used to be married to Hugo or she he thinks that there's a pending divorce, but that it's like over over and it's really not. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, typical, and typical. yeah, so don't worry, trust say, me. It's over. Right, don't it's worry over. It's totally over. And and this goes on. So they meet in 1947. It's until 1955 where Rupert is like, listen, we're getting married right now. We're going to get married right now. And she's like run out of excuses. Right. Because um, she kept saying like, well, we got married in Mexico. It was like she always has like some different <laughs> weird lie that why it wasn't illegal marriage. My yeah. citizenship is all screwed up. So I can't because my, you know, whatever. And eventually he like calls her on it and they get married. And so she is technically, quote unquote, legally married to two men simultaneously for years, um, which causes it. Anyway, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. Now, I want to tell you what her life was like in California because it's funny for a while Rupert who's a younger man he's working for the forest service in like government housing like a little shack where she has to like chop wood and scrub floors all day right oh, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, you imagine? there's nothing worse for her like there's what no way she wants chat. to do he it. like took the most promiscuous woman in the world and that, shut like, it glorifies- down yeah, yeah shut basically it down. as yeah. close as you can to shutting her down right oh man yeah yeah now she had this thing so this gets complicated right yeah i mean it's she's living she's got two husbands in different sides of the country right and she's got to she's yeah. constantly got to make up lies about why she has to go back her only source source of income is hugo right so she's she's taking money from hugo and she explains that that is income she's making from her various edit- editorial jobs, writing jobs, and a screening of Hugo's films because he's gotten into experimental filmmaking, which she did do. She would show some of his films. And she's then giving this money to Rupert, but it's just Hugo's allowance for her yeah. that she's spending, she's giving to Rupert so that Rupert can then buy this house, right? Yeah. Um, uh, now, she would enlist a bunch of friends to help her with these lies, right? Because you can't do this. You can't lie to this magnitude by yourself, right? You have to have people who are, you know, people who can take a phone call for you, people who can relay a message, people who can lie in your stead. Oh, she just stepped out, that sort of thing. She kept a complicated assemblage of information in a little box that she called her box of lies, that, that was all of the you know this person i told this person this on this date i this person can be relied upon to answer the phone when they call between this time and this time and you know it was it was so she could keep herself straight and when she would fly in between the two between california and new york she'd have to review this so that she could tell a cohesive story to the oh man when she God. showed up like like all those all those tiktok videos of these type of women that cold healing posts on twitter yeah. nothing compares to Anais Nen. Yeah. Like she's got a PhD in mm-hmm. being a lying woman. <laughs> like it's- yeah. and, and, and I can't convey this. It's not like this went on for a year. 
This went on for from 1947 until it kind of it when did it fall apart? It's kind of hard to say, but it went on yeah. for like 15 years. Oh right? my god. I'm just picturing like that 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 clip from the Trump speech from the snake where she's yeah. he's like, you know, uh, shut up, silly woman. <laughs> I can just picture that in my head right now. <laughs> Did she not feel anything like remorse or she, she did, but she kept feeling she did this thing where like, oh, it would hurt Hugo too much to find out. And it would hurt Rupert and too much is, for him. But to did find he out. know? Yeah, he yeah, Hugo knew. Rupert Rupert hmm. was a little well, see, when Rupert met her, she was the sophisticated writer. So like for her to say, hey, listen, I got all these opportunities in New York and I want to be with you, but I ain't got, you know, I, I'm a writer. I'm like a modern woman who's got a, that's a little more believable. Right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. on the other end, Hugo knows her. Why are you you're going to California to write in the woods? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> hmm. And then where is the writing? Why isn't there a book out? Like, if you're in the woods writing all the time, what, what what's happening, right? So it 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 it's it's it is like they kind of know, but they sort of don't let themselves know, especially Hugo. Um, and you know, oh, poor. I feel bad for Hugo, but there is a certain yeah. line where it's like you gotta just you gotta just accept, like look at things square and just get you know, out of there, bro. Have some right, dignity, right? You exactly. Know? You gotta you hundred percent. I mean, is yourself. he stepping out on his side? And, and he does a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, right. he definitely. Well, you he definitely you have to. But my yeah. goodness. Yeah. There is even a time where they go, and we're kind of glossing over stuff, and we're 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 getting near the end. All we got to talk about is she does become famous in her lifetime. And I do want to talk about that. She um. There is a time where like she goes to France on vacation with Hugo and brings Rupert along and tells Rupert that she's there on assignment for a magazine and brings Rupert along. Hugo's staying in one place and Rupert's staying in another place. And she's like making up lies to run between them in France. Right. Just in just total insanity. Now. She hasn't totally stopped writing. She's still she's still yeah. writing. But basically, even after the success of Under a Glass Bell, nobody will really publish her work. She gets a, a bump up um, by this small for, small company called Swallow Press, which is based out of Denver. It's this guy named Alan Swallow who's just printing stuff out of his garage. It's like an uber indie, but it's actually kind of profitable. And he has, you know, he has pretty good taste. So he's he's making he's making he's making he's putting out interesting things, including Nin. Um I did think this was funny. This is Nin about, I'm going to read this and I think you guys will get a kick out of this. This is Nin talking about, she keeps getting rejected, right? For her cities of inter the interior books. Um, and where is it? 367. This is again from the bear biography, but this is, this is Nin's voice. Um, uh, okay. Meanwhile, she continued the, and this is, she's frustrated because she's not getting published. The homosexuals are ruling the arts and mechanics of writing. <laughs> oh, she called them out! Oh, what she condemned oh, no. was... She named them. Yeah, she what named she them! Oh, no. In the art world, she's who's going to be... In, she's going to be... Oh, no. What she condemned was the essential basic problem of homosexuality as a symptom of adolescence, of retarded maturity. The, tr oh. the true degenerates are not the homosexuals for being homosexual, but those who, by a process of stunted growth, continue to exhibit at 50 all the symptoms of awkward, aggressive, dissonant, unstable adolescence. Okay. 
She, well, like all the um, men she's fucking. It's like, just, it's yeah, just yeah. everybody she's in the group, group chat. Yeah, everybody for, in the group chat. She's yeah. subtweeting right now. For this, <laughs> for this, she blamed the larger American culture with its quote fixation on adolescence rather than the homosexuals yes, yes, themselves. It's right. true. It's <laughs> true. But she's a right. product of it. She's right. a product right. of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh man! Oh. Wow, we did Geo. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Here's here's the last bit from oh, her. On this. I'm going Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why should why should and this is her voice why should they make an effort to mature when all around them maturity is confused with aging and the american literature press psychology whatever is a glorification of 17 year olds uh period and a ridicule a burlesque oh. a primitive caricature yep. of middle age as a physical decadence without a moment's recognition of the contribution of maturity to civilization the cult of the child produced the type which pervades american letters arrogant narcissistic intent on destroying the parent as all adolescents are Wow. I this take is... back everything I said about her. One of us. One of us. One of us. You'd be yeah. a base right wing e girl. She'd start yeah, posting yeah. Uh, spinny wheels and everything. No, but that's true, though. But unfortunately, she's the same product of that stunt. Yeah, she's, well, she's so. pretty, it's, it's about her, yeah. too. And she doesn't yeah. quite see that. But yeah. yeah but yeah. American culture, I hate to say it, like, I mean, North American culture, because American culture is now global world culture you know globalization's mm -hmm. americanization um it is true like the worship of the the cult of the adolescent because the adolescent is like you're like quote unquote mature enough to enjoy things like you know sex drugs blah 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 yeah. but you still don't have any responsibility that right. is like the nirvanic period of well, all literature and culture mm -hmm. and pop the culture industry in other words they're yeah. the Go perfect ahead, they're the perfect consumers every every exactly. teenager is a blank slate for Madison yeah. Avenue, whatever you want to call yeah. that, whatever yeah. that mm -hmm. thing is, uh, so they can mold them. And uh, so by the time you're 40, it's over, bro. Mm -hmm. right? you know, oh, yeah. By the time you're 30. got to get that. So, yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. We got to get no, that 16 like, year old. Yep. Mm -hmm. But notice like even nowadays consumerism, like it's there's no millennials anywhere. There's it's yeah. either Gen Xers yeah. or boomers. I mean, that still get catered to in certain things. And and Zoomers, the millennial yeah. is erased because we have yeah. we have nothing. We have no disposable income. So, <laughs> right, 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 somebody right. didn't we buy did the nothing. We did nothing. We were not even going to be a footnote in history. The millennial is over. It is so over for us aging millennials. You know? Oh, uh, my God. This uh, Geo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a different pod, man. It's good, man. No, I love it. It's just like my, my brain is just reeling by, by you know, just going, oh my yeah. God, really? Yeah. Uh, but you're right, incest, man. Incest, yeah. millennials, yeah, yeah, millennials yeah. being passed over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will live, not live in the pod. I will not live in the house of incest. <laughs> I will not live. No, the, the house of incest is a perfect matter because you experience your emotions through the other. What do you think mm. a lot of this sort of like a lot of these online communities, like I, I, I wrote this essay actually where I quote House of Incest, mm. where it's like the online ecology of it, like even like the way that if you do live in this pod existence, you do sort of live isolated, but yet in a group where you have this dynamic where you can experience emotion outside of the other. It's like, really, that's what the modern world is creating. It's it's turning, it's it's going into the giga favela longhouse of incest. That's the modern world's turning us into. You know, that's what they want you to love. Mm. The pod never Geo has 
Gio has opinions. I, mm-hmm. I love it. We're going to have a, a link to it. his. I love if it. Don't know Gio. Using it for the tweet promo. Yes. You're going to have to clip yes. that. No, not incest. at all. No. The Giga Favela Longhouse yeah. of Incest. Bronze Age Pervert needs to listen to this episode. Uh, well, you know, yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, uh, if he does, let us know. Uh, go on. Go on, Brad. The Long Oh, okay. Very good. Okay, we, we back arrived. All right, that's all right. That was great. Yeah, that was a great three hours. And I, I picked it. Oh yeah, no, no, crush it. Is, we're still going to do the after dark for yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We're, we're getting. We're into. We're into page sixteen of my twenty-page outline, which includes right. the after dark. Right. So we're bring getting us, there. Bring us home, there. Yeah. So okay. The one thing. The one thing about the whole lying situation with the two of them that I want to set up is she wants the life of extravagance that Hugo can provide her, but increasingly can't provide her because a lot of his wild, he always thought he was going to be a millionaire and he never quite was, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And he yeah. always had like some new scheme about how he's going to invest and it was going to work out and it never quite worked. So she wanted the life of luxury and security he could provide, even though less and less that was so, but she wanted the mind blowing sex with Rupert. She wanted both of these things. And oh, of course, so of course, instead yeah. of, and and so she, kind of develops a sense where she's sort of entitled to it in some way right she gets mm-hmm. to have both of them which that's the part that's like like you know you don't get to have everything sorry you know you like that's an unacceptable message sorry her, honey apparently. you don't get yeah. to have it all okay? you don't mm-hmm. yeah man nobody does anyway yeah. so but you know she hits about 50 years old and she still hasn't broken through as a writer i mean she's had that article by edmund wilson she's had attention rebecca west thought she was great she's had moments but she's never really burst through into anything and the question is, okay, how does this change? Why do we know who she is then, right? Why mm-hmm. are we talking about her? Why is she a big deal? Why is there a million photos of her on the internet? Well, there's a couple of factors. Um, one, she becomes relentless, a relentless opportunist. She becomes confident, really confident in her work and will talk to everybody. And she's and she she leverages her narcissism and egomania into a hustle, right? Like, oh, I'm going to make man. this happen. She will talk to everybody. She talks to Hollywood producers. She she's always trying to talk her way. She's talking to publishers. She's always trying she's to talk the her first, way. Really, she's the first influencer. You know, really. yeah, yeah. I mean, she's, yeah. she's done she does a it's pretty even before Maryland. Before yeah. Maryland, yeah. 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 So so there's so there's that, right? She's actually is working hard to make things happen for herself. She the one thing I do respect about her is like the publishing world told her no, and she said, Oh, I'm gonna make this happen. Yeah. And I do admire that quality, right? Where you're like, I'm not gonna take no for an answer. I'm gonna buy my own printing press. How about that? You know? Um, the other thing is so that that's going on. The other thing is Henry Miller becomes a literary superstar. Um, he's a big deal, right? Um uh and then in 1956, this leads to an interesting little aside I want to get. So so her star kind of rises with Henry Miller's in a way, right? Because yeah. she's sort of so paired with him. This biography memoir thing comes out by this writer called Fred Perlis. And Fred knew Anais and Henry back in the day in the 30s. And this book comes out called My Friend Henry Miller. And this is like a memoir and a biography of Henry Miller at the same time. Um, and in it, he talks about Nin and Henry being together in a relationship, but Nin can't have that because uh, ostensibly Hugo doesn't know that she slept with Henry. So she can't have this book coming out. Um, oh, man. Right, right. So she manages to convince the writer Fred Perlis to change it so that um, the Nin character gets split into two. There's Nin, the friend and writer. So she's still in the book as a writer, and that helps her reputation. And then there is this 
made up woman who is the having the affair with Henry. And they have it's so late in the game that they have to reprint the book. Um, and guess who pays to reprint the reprint the book? Hugo pays to reprint the book. Of course. Oh. Hugo pays to reprint the Don't book be because if it doesn't get reprinted, he will find out that she was sleeping with was she was having an affair on him 20 years before, right? Just yeah. total insanity. Um, so I have a passage, by the way, but yeah, you go finish. Go for it. No, well, that that's all I was saying. So part of her, I, I kind of had this three-pronged thing of why she starts getting famous. One, hustle. Two, Henry Miller's yeah. becoming famous and her star kind of rises with his. And three, the feminists find her. Oh, yes. They, not, not, dun, they dun, find dun. her hard. They find her good. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, go I ahead. Go she, ahead. Kate Millett was one of her friends, if I recall. Or uh, who's that? Her. Kate Millett was one yeah, of the very popular. Yep. Yep. Which, I mean, Kate Millett's not actually good. She's a pretty good writer, actually, mm -hmm, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, along with Eric Gary. But, um. Mm -hmm. This this illustrates this is from her diary. This is around I'm think I'm getting to the 50s now. Um this is from the transparent child. No, this is late 40s. This illustrates her relation to men, though. Um, a child who enters your being by softness, a newborn man who asserts himself when he says, I want you. We took our clothes off at the end and lay uh, bodies to body, his sex in erect. He spilled his seed too soon against me, not inside of me. So that I feel the warm rain over me. By the way, a lot of his, a lot of her erotic stories. That's one thing I forgot to mention. Um, is written for women, but a particular type of woman, mm -hmm. because there is not any form of reproduction involved in terms mm -hmm. of, like, a lot of erotica. And again, I only know this for research purposes because of other <laughs> things I tried to. Do. Please, I, I mean nothing by this. Yeah. A lot of erotica especially when it's written by men, even if you read delicious tacos or good friend, um, a lot of it has the fetishization over reproduction. A lot mm. of like, oh, please come inside of me. Like that's, that is totally absent. Any reproductive organ. The only thing that she talks about in a lot of her erotica and Delta Venus is like her womb is on fire, but it is not like the, the skin, the outside, the penetration. But when it comes to the completion of the male act of, of, uh, the giving of life to use a metaphor it's not it's totally absent in erotica there's no hint because men usually will fetishize reproduction hmm. you know like like i said just read delicious tacos right hmm. so maybe i should talk to him one day about that but anyways hmm. um but here it's like the the, the <laughs> i know i know um <laughs> the right, constant <laughs> the the spilling of seed is not in the womb it's 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 mm. wasted right so here that is says, actually just look real quick her like, first affair with john erskine that's yeah. what happens it's exactly, not it's yeah. like unconsummated yeah. in this way yeah but but here she talks about all the men she's with what strange joys joys of birth joys of erotic motherhood his agony when i his enjoy me see when i go out when I went to the Ganderals at the 11th, so Hugo, who uh, would know I had not been there, Bill went to France, uh, France's and tried to telephone me so I would leave. I had mentioned the Gandals having invited a man who would want to meet me. Bill asked me over the telephone when I got home, what did the man do? His insecurity is mine, and Hugo suffered because Bill will grow up, return in a uniform, a man, you will love him. I had no time for Lonnie, who is courting me again, who wants to reawaken my love. I have to put my love in Bill's hands and trust with his, with his hidden, unborn, unconscious self, whom he does not know yet. His love for me is unconscious, blind. His consciousness, he is a child. 
confused inner tick that reserved separated. I go to Gonzalo and fulfill my unfinished sensual act, carrying in my body the warm caress of Bill. I have the child inside of me, Anias, the undying adolescence who persists in living out this relationship with another child. Bill looks at times like a young rimbod. Hugo is suffering, and together we have discovered that all, all through the past, his deadness was a secret, muted jealousy. I found the words to console him, but he cannot stem the flow of love. I drift, float, cannot work or write. I live like a flower now. I cannot hold back, direct, guide, or stop this flow of life. Hugo loves me for it and suffers from it. I love his concentration on me, but it is a burden. Mm. I carry his love with Bill like a precious seed. But that's the thing. Like She's mixing metaphors of Mm -hmm. reproduction and awakening the child within other men, but living sensuously through other men when she is interrupted, having an emotional relationship with one man, going for a sexual relationship with another. But meanwhile, Hugo is all frustrated. Yeah. And he yeah. and she doesn't return his love. Yeah. Now, love. this is yeah. this is the thing is it, it betrays a certain pathology, but also right. it does also do a good a good yeah. job of. And it's also vaguely pedophilic, but that's besides yeah. the point. But it yeah. does a good job of presenting the complications of being inside. She a says she's head. floating in life. She's mm-hmm. floating between men, floating between locations. Mm-hmm. There is no self, some kind of. Ab- there is some kind of abstraction. Okay. Right, right. There's the idea of an ISN, but yeah. the reality is no... you may touch your cold flesh and it may, you may feel yours. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She's, a tri- oh, she's such a trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Easton Ellis, but yeah. yeah, 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 no, yeah. it's true. Oh, it's uh, an okay. ISN, some kind of abstraction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's not uh, a bad title for the episode. But I have a, I have another passage, but we'll get that to the end before we get to the, the Patreon part. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. there's a couple, cause yeah, there are a couple of points I want to hit. Um, oh, one thing, this is just an interesting anecdote. At one point in the hustle, she's trying to, um, she tries to sell some letters. Um, she's, she's trying to make money. And the other thing is she always wants to sell the diaries. Right. That's yeah. the thing. She's oh, everything else is just a, like she's much more interested in getting her diaries published. And eventually they do. But mostly it gets rejected. It's like, why would we want to publish this? It's just a bunch of self-indulgent writing. Right. Eventually it does pu- get published <laughs> and does OK. But at one point she goes to the Kinsey Institute. Right. And you, oh, uh, right. And, and she tries to sell them um, portions, either portions of her diary or her letters. And they say, um, well, we can't buy them from you. We don't really have the budget for that. And also, we already have some of your letters. She's like, well, what, do you, what do you mean? She's like, yeah, we we get our hands on whatever kinds of descriptions of sex, like the, the psychology of sexuality we oh, can. God. And like somebody had somebody who'd managed to get their hands on it. She doesn't even know who gave them thought that they would be a good fit at the Kinsey Institute. They, just, they would be and ironically yeah, they would give yeah, me a good yeah yeah i just thought that was interesting you go there and like it's already here like you guys <laughs> already have this um okay so and niacin uh, was an agent of the deep state by the way so <laughs> <laughs> she might have been i don't know i mean i think she everybody is. helped invent it uh she may have helped invent the deep state, <laughs> yeah. yeah usually on our show we're like was this person a spy and now it's like was this person Somebody who inspired the spies, yeah, muse. Yeah. Now she gets, Crazy. she gets, she gets kind of like she does. The times catch up with her is is kind of what happens, I think, in terms of why her writing takes off. Um, her last novel, Collages, ends up on the Time Chris, Christmas list. Like Time puts this list of like here's some things you should buy for Christmas, baby, and it ends up in there, right? And it's she's she becomes by the mid '60s, she's 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 celebrated and she's making more money than Hugo. I think after 1966, she would end up financing Hugo instead of the other way around. Um, 
And a lot of that sort of payback. Henry Miller also comes back and starts writing her monthly checks, too, because he's his star has grown so high. And I think he did feel a certain amount of indebtedness. Um, uh, but here's the thing. Are she, we are we doing this wrong, by the way? Like, should we be cutting each other checks? No. It, it, well, yeah. Brent, no. Yeah, well, yes. No. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. guess. Yes. We and do no. it with Patreon. You cut me a check like, and I'll cut like, you a check, Kevin. Yeah. I, I just it just the, the way that people handled their finances in the past always surprises me. It's always like, well, my uncle cut me mm-hmm. a check and I went to live in France for two years. And you just feel like, <laughs> what? Yeah. This does not compute. Yeah. A yeah. small loan of a million dollars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell you a little bit about, I mean, read this passage about how she presented herself when her fame kicked off. This is the late 1960s. And she's an older woman. I mean, 1960s, she's in her 60s, right? The public perception of Nin at this time can be seen in an article about Miller's banned books written by Joseph Kay, the new uh, New York correspondent of the Kansas City Star. Kay thought her in, quote, early Greenwich Village beatnik, who also writes in the unorthodox manner of Miller. He was staggered by her appearance, quote, clad in a stunning Gresham robe and gold slippers. Like so many others, he was awed by the long flowing Rekamai gowns and the gauzy Indian cottons she wore. She was 58. Okay, it was a little earlier than I thought, but still. She was 58, but could have passed for a woman in her late 30s or early 40s. Her hair was newly lightened to a becoming blonde. Her body was slim and taut from swimming, daily massage, and scrupulous attention to her diet. Her face was exquisitely made up, and she positioned herself carefully in the apartment's flattering soft pink lighting. Kay was so captivated that he swallowed her version of her life without question that she had helped Miller considerably when he was penniless in Paris. Right. So this is how she presents herself in this. She's evocative. She walks down the street and she's sort of like peacock feathers and weird ribbons and costumed kind of right. Typical. So Hollywood socialite. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, she'd be and you know, she would at times she would paint. She would make up her face almost completely white and then she would make her eyes very dark. Right. Like very, very dark. So almost like this, like Helena Bonham Carter and Fight Club kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's sort of almost how I picture her. Oh my god! Yeah, um, so many, so much things are going on. So much things, so much fantasy is going on here. It's, oh yeah, it's oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Well, she, you know, she's living in the in the dream, right? Um, now she starts to get. Oh, here's another thing. This is the one I was thinking of when she was in her 60s. She's getting letters constantly, right? This is the fan mail is kicked off. The women, lo- women love her. Um, uh, there were not many 63-year-old women who walked the street in broad daylight with their hair entwined with ribbons and flowers and pi- piled high on their heads, who wore long flowing gowns of white cashmere or silver lame covered with dramatic capes that once belonged to parish priests or French policemen and who painted their face and lips uh, dead white in a fashion of the day and darkened their eyes so heavily they were startling when glimpsed unexpectedly on a Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, She was a striking presence as she stood online at the post office or methodically churned out page after page at the local photocopy machine. Her lifelong attention to physical appearance was now paying dividends as she progressed through her 60s. Everyone assumed she was a woman in her early 50s and she did not disabuse them of this notion. Nin realized how much her personal appearance enhanced the sale of her books, and she did everything she could to capitalize on it, including registering with uh, registering with the respected uh, lay lecture agency. She was immediately booked on a grueling schedule that would have defeated a much younger woman. So she capitalized on her fame for a writer by going like constantly lecturing, going to colleges and lecturing to mostly groups of women, right? On her writing, on sexuality, on being a woman, you know, on all of these things. Anais Nin ruined a whole generation of women, <laughs> like literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, unmute so, yourself, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. 
I was I was just gonna say oh. uh, it, it sounds like you know a lot of women hit the wall. Uh, it sounds like she literally hit the wall. She barreled through the wall. She did. She, did she conquered care. it. Yeah, she, yeah, she conquered it. You like, gotta respect that. I do respect yeah. that. She yeah. broke down the walls of Jericho. Holy crap! Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. And then this moment comes after she starts getting success in the mid '60s, and she starts making the money. She starts looking at the life she has with Hugo in New York, and she's like, "Why do I even go there anymore?" Like suddenly now she's got what she wants like why do i care so she focuses more on the rupert relationship and rupert ends up turning out to be kind of a decent guy in the end it seems um he's built a house now that's designed by um frank lloyd wright's son i guess um so designed this house that she now lives in so she's living in this she's living in an art inside of an art project basically and it's a sort of it is a sort of striking mo modern home in in malibu um and that's that's where she sort of ends her life. Uh, she's technically her marriage to Rupert is technically annulled because the tax situation gets so complicated. Right. She's making money. But like who she married to and how does the taxes work? She eventually has to get the marriage annulled. Hugo does find out about it towards the end. Rupert finds out about it towards the end that she's been living this sort of double life. It all kind of comes out. Um, somehow there isn't an explosion of sort of anger. It just sort of it's sort of just like it's like everybody knew and they finally just acknowledged it really um mm -hmm. there were some weird late night phone calls like rupert was at a party when she was in new york and heard a rumor so he called the number she was supposed to be at and hugo answered and like there's some complications but ultimately <laughs> rupert and hugo oh. ended up knowing each other hey. and being on reasonably good terms is uh is she around yeah bro right 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 <laughs> Hey. So, uh, oh, yeah, the one last little piece I want to talk about is her health and like the end, right? All right. Um, I'm just trying to get this, bring bring this home here. Um, she had pretty bad health most of her life, right? We had the whole yeah. append burst appendicitis thing or burst appendix thing. Uh, she drank too much. I don't know if she was technically an alcoholic or not, but she definitely drank too much. She was on a lot of medications. She was Part on for the course. She was on speed for years, yeah. you know, all this traveling. There were times where she was so, so tired out from having sex with so many people that she couldn't get out of bed. Um, Whoa. Dude, in life goals, in squad 19, goals. Whoa, squad, that's man. remarkable. That's in, Sigma Grindset right yeah, there. That's right. right that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And 19, also the way she died. I wonder... All that contributed to enemies. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. This yeah is what Brad's we're going to talk going to bring us there. Yeah. 1953, she said she find out she has a tumor as big as an orange on her ovary. It's benign, apparently, but they remove it. And it nothing is ever good for her health wise after this, after no. 1953. Um, she has constant, she has an enlarged heart, cramps in her legs, heart murmur, chronic nasal irritation and bleeding and anemia. She no longer can handle being in the cold at all. Um, and she starts, of course, reporting it in these very strange kind of terms, the way that Anais Nin would, right? Because remember, her distinctions between the internal sort of poetic reality and the and reality real reality yeah. is, 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 real. is, is it's it's kind of it's it's sort of all mixed up. I want to just read this one quick thing when she's talking about her symptoms, because I think it's kind of it's kind of beautiful, but kind of funny, too. Um, she sent a list of her of symptoms to her doctor requesting an appointment for a physical examination. In language more surrealistic than medical, she described how she was sometimes awakened at dawn with the, quote, faint feeling of a trembler in which her heart felt as if a liquid were trying to pass through a rough channel. At other times, she felt, quote, a kind of suspense, followed by, quote, a heavy drop falling in slow rhythm. 
Most important, however, was her statement that, quote, on the emotional level, I've been disturbed, but I am under analysis. Um, so, yeah, so she's like, it, it's all sort of like figures merging out of the fog in her in the dream in which she's living. That's her symptoms. Right. Um, by 1969, long after menopause has, has come and gone for her, um, she starts to bleed from the vagina. Mm. Um and she so much bleeding from that she has to like wear a tampon to keep it from you know for what tampons do right but not a good not a healthy sign by no, the way it's not, not a good when sign. blood's just falling out of you right like uh, not part of the normal processes um this was the beginning of the cancer that would eventually take her life right it would it would expand into cervical cancer or maybe it started as cervical cancer yeah. it's not totally clear um and it would lead to intense pain um addiction to darvon or whatever um uh and then uh, they were starting oh to... yeah darvon that, yeah that, that's fun yeah yeah that yeah. always comes back doesn't it it does yeah so she yeah. was she was on that for years for like eight years um in 1974 the, the cancer came back so much that it unfortunately ruined lovemaking with rupert for months uh <laughs> in the in the same year she was inducted however into the american academy and institute of arts and letters so she she's, she's arrived creatively um but the health the health thing just deteriorates it's just a gradual deterioration there's some misdiagnosis and missteps medically but it's just it's just slow 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 degradation i'm going to read a couple more things and then i'm kind of done with the, her life story but you mean to tell me that a life of promiscuity drug addiction abortion mm-hmm. that they contribute to cervical cancer no, that's an evil right wing Republican pro life conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not an expert. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's medical. Yeah, this, it's this, medical. This podcast is an expert truster pod. Ex- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trust. Listen, it's yeah. it's medical info. It's disinformation mm. to mm. say that abortion contributes to cancer or promiscuity. Contributes mm-hmm. to cancer in any way. There's no such thing as microchimerism. Uh, <laughs> please, it's all disinformation. <laughs> she was a very handsome woman late in the life. I'm looking at pictures of her. Yeah, she really kept it together. She, she really did. did. Yeah, yeah did. on She's the a... outside anyway. Yeah, on the yeah. outside yeah. anyway. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a. I'm gonna give you a quote from her. On the inside, it was again. Ragnarok, but you know, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Oh, no, right. absolute pandemonium, demons. In yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Uh, just total um, hell. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna give you a quote from her, and then I'll tell you the the story of the end of her life. I am not there. My body has slipped away. Now, she still looked forward for the daily arrival of fan mail, but wondered why if it no longer made her happy. What is it? What has happened to me? A sorrow of enormous depth lies at the bottom. Oh, so heavy. I cannot resume my joy. It is not the concept of death, the parting from all love. It is a profound sorrow at the loss of my energy, my fire. There is a void, a void. Before my illness, I was physically and emotionally close to everyone. Yeah, right. Now there is a distance. Okay, now this is as she's getting ill, iller and iller and sicker. Um, Emily, just read you the last bit. Uh, and I, uh, Anais grew steadily weaker throughout December 1976, but Rupert continued to care for her until her lungs filled with fluid and she lapsed into a coma. Rupert, like, helps her out. There's, I should read this one other little bit because it gets, her illness gets kind of insane. Let me read one other bit that I, I meant to. Um, Because I want to give you a sense of like what her, how you said her body's Ragnarok. Let me tell you how Ragnarok it was. (laughs) 
Um, at one point, there is a they have to put like a bag on her um, to because stuff is like falling apart and they have to capture fluids. Um, oh. The continuous torment of the leaking bag, the overactive fistula hunt, hours spent lying flat in bed waiting for the nurse, the anxiety when a visitor comes that the leak should happen, awakening at night to find it has burst, wearing a dress I love and the fistula staining it, getting up two or three times a night to empty the bag, the feeling of an impure body, the saddest hours are those spent waiting for the nurse. When the bag leaks, I have to take it off and lie flat in bed with wash rags to sponge off the horrible content of the fistula. The hole is deep. The discharge ugly, green, yellow. I often weep. So just oh my god, that's totally falling apart, right? Just that, like yeah, yeah. That's like the description of the guy that had uh, radiation sickness mm-hmm. in, in Japan. Like Ooh. oh my god, yeah. So this is right at the end. Um, She grew steadily weaker throughout December 1976, but Rupert continued to care for her until her lungs filled with fluid and she lapsed into a coma. She died at the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital on January 14, 1977. Her death certificate cited as causes cardiorespiratory arrest, severe malnutrition, and widespread metastatic carcinoma. Early the next morning, Rupert telephoned Joaquin, that's her father, who then telephoned Hugo. When Nin's obituaries appeared, the New York Times reported that she was survived by her husband, Hugh P. Geiler, and the Los Angeles Times by her hu- reported by, that she was survived by her husband, Rupert Pohl. Both men were exceedingly considerate of each other's feelings, and with Joaquin acting as intermediary, sorry, this is her brother, Joaquin, not her father, and with Joaquin acting as intermediary, it was agreed by both that Hugo would allow her, quote, friends to take charge of her burial. Annaeus Nin, the Pisces, influenced all of her life by the sign, quote, ruled by Neptune, the planet of illusion, asked to be buried at sea. So Rupert took her ashes aloft in a small plane over Santa Monica Bay. Studying the navigation charts while the pilot flew, he noticed that all the markings were described by ordinary fish names except for one, Mermaid Cove. He directed the plane to fly there and drop the bright pink blanket containing the ashes of Annaeus Nin, just as a ray of sunlight broke through the overcast January sky. His eyes followed the blanket's descent to where it lay floating on top of the water for a very long time. When Rupert returned to Silver Lake, he discovered that Mermaid Cove was directly over the hill from the house's living area, obscured from view by a willow tree. Several weeks later, for no discernible reason, the healthy tree died. Rupert believes it did not want to impede his view of Mermaid Cove. He never planted another. So. Wow. Um, another one of these charmed death things where something mystical, we see this on like every episode we do where they die and then somebody reports like some, some strange thing happened in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's the night life of Nin. We're going to talk in the after dark about her relationship with her father, but yes. Wow. Well done, Brad. Well (laughs) done, Gio. Yeah, that was great. We went all around the block. Gio, you you were going to say. No, this one last passage comes from uh, the Anais Nin Literary Journal, Cafe in Space, mm. um, about the the image of Nin. So this one passage says, um, extensively and with great detail about women's sexuality and the way in which art and sex are both part of women's creativity. Furthermore, as a socialite and lover of sex, non-monogamy, theater and dance, Nin wore dramatic looking capes, dark lipstick, dra- long dresses, blah, blah, blah. Not Nin to reconstituted herself through posting for photographs and films. So, uh, you know, all those Instagram influencers, uh, all the uh, the Sarah Babas of the world, you got nothing on Anais Nin. You're all just a bunch of shallow bitches compared to her. Um, so, 
<laughs> where can they yeah all right good. Yeah. We're, we're, oh you yeah. should see the there's a documentary yeah. that came out in 1974 nice. called uh an Anais nin observed and it's yeah of her at her home and it's the most instagrammy thing that could have possibly Ever been made imaginable. in 1974 yeah, yeah. barth's room so this talks about roland barth and film um or rather the camera lucidia um which is a good i i personally like that i love roland barth so look the act of looking back through um, authorial editing is one of the ways Nin performs. Barth rec- reminds us that reconstitution, transformation, and interpretation come from various places and serves different purposes, and that the world is constantly subject to interpretation because it constantly uh, it's constantly being reinvented by new eyes. He recognized that visual imageries images are ambiguous, filled with layers of gazes and splitting of the subject idea and identity through posting for f- posing for photographs. A photograph doesn't end with the image on the surface, but rather photographs have an interior life. And so this is a linchpin of a lot of postmodern writing around the art of photography, especially camera lucidia. Barth's reading of photographs is in stark contrast to tradition that sees photographs in film, especially of women, purely as reductive spectacles. Laura Mulvey, as well as Robert Snyder, understand film and photography as existing with the dichotomous arrangement of the subject and the object. If we take this view, however, we lose sight of all the complexities of being photographed and looking at pictures Barth, Barth lays out for us in camera lucidia. Barth writes that a splitting of selves occurs. We are the photographed as well as we look at pictures rendering the subject object binary, overtly simplistic. As I discuss Nin's, Nin and falling pages, I want to keep in mind the way in which she reconstitutes herself where she is looked at either consciously or unconsciously that it not to place any value judgment on either conscious or unconscious reconstitution for both Barth's and Nin teaches that the interpretation transformation by oneself or by others eyes are entirely um, unavoidable. And then in this passage in the beginning, she says she writes in the spy in the house of love is a precursor to the second volume of Durrell's quiet quartet, Livia living fractured and buried life unseen and unknown which must ultimately be exhumed and exposed as an object lesson in personal and universal culture. And I would suggest that the inevitable lie, which we must employ until the moment of revelation, which Nin called the Messonage Vital, the lie which gives life, allowing us to escape from eternal abhorrent present of oneself, as Durrell puts it, then becomes the point of transformation when the masks we wear cease to be masks of concealment and become masks of heraldry, of identity. And thus, I believe, is what distinguishes the three musketeers uh, talks about other literature people but essentially uh it says that she is imbuing herself with the quote minor mythologies of popular literature the idea of relatively making many people fearful the idea that you are one person who with and she this is a quote from Aniston. the idea of relatively relativity makes many people fearful the idea that you are one person with me today and another person with someone else later so again she the fluidity of herself is reflected in the photographs in the film and the way that she presents herself as a public figure. She really, before Marilyn, you know, Marilyn Monroe, before Jane Mansfield, she is the first public celebrity in that sense. Hmm. She is presenting different sides of herself through film. It's something that you could take to its like utter postmodern extremes with something like the film, the, the film scenes from uh, Cindy Sherman's, photographs right where mm, she's, i don't know those yeah yeah where she basically she's doing like motifs of films but they're like disembodied from like a particularity mm. of any film it's basically like essentially she's filming herself doing like tropes from cinema 
mm-hmm. but it's like disembodied and like postmodern in the sense mm-hmm. of yeah yeah she With, and I mm-hmm. does this as well so yeah, yeah and, she, and that's the bells she, of atlanta bell of atlantis is kind of like that too the film that hugo that made that was yeah. basically starring her was like that and then was also in a kenneth anger film uh oh what is it something at the pleasure dome um i'm blanking on the full name of it now where oh, yes she is sort of presenting yeah. herself in this sort of cobbled together mythological inauguration of the pleasure inauguration kenneth anger's a crowleyan uh or had definitely had some crowley interest that was a banger certified geo thank you so much for coming on do you want to and we're going to talk more on the after dark artofdarkpod.com patreon.com slash artofdarkpod book club coming 2023 Mm -hmm. we're going to kick off in january we're going to make an announcement uh, our friends over at the New Right Pod, I, I went on. They've yet to put the episode out, but when it comes out, uh, when they when they edit out all my Fed posting, uh, <laughs> did they bring up Jaws? Did somebody bring up Jaws? No, no, it? nobody oh. brought up Jaws. No, but but the the point is, you know, get in on the Patreon now. It's three dollars now to get in. It's going to go to five dollars on January first. If you get in now, you'll be grandfathered in. We hope you want to support the show. We love our Patreon subscribers. We love everybody who listens to Art of Darkness, even the people who uh, who kvetch at us. Yeah, we won't <laughs> get any. We won't get, get yeah. any kvetching after this episode. Oh so. no, no, not yeah. at all, not at all. Yeah, um, <laughs> Geo, do you want to? You know, before we we exit briefly to then return and do the After Dark episode, do you want to give your plugs? Tell people where to where to find you. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my everyone knows me on Twitter, Twitter.com slash Giant Geo. Uh, go to YouTube for the public version of all my podcasts, um, you know, Giant Productions, and of course, Patreon.com slash Giant Productions. I'm on Telegram as Giant Productions. Um, I have also other things too, like Instagram and all that, but, uh, you know, working on my website to sell my artwork and stuff. So, yeah, but support me on Patreon, Giant Productions at Patreon.com slash Giant Productions. There you go. Um, Do yeah. Do it. Do it. Well, right. we got to ask the final question. You got to, I guess, yeah. you got to field it oh, for boy. me. Yeah. 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 What yeah. would, uh, what would NS Nin be doing now, Kevin? Well, I'll start and then I'll, I, I, because, uh, I, I don't I feel like I'm going to be, yeah, I know that's what I said. I think, she, I think she's on the gram, but I also think she's, she's extraordinarily sophisticated about it. And I think she mm-hmm. might be doing pop-ups or weird events. She might, yeah. she she like might be working. Power was talented. Exactly. <laughs> like if Ruby Core was talented. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And she would writing... she would have a feminist phase, but then she would be canceled for various things. I... She'd go through a post left phase, and she'd be in Dime Square. She'd be on Red Scare. She'd be the third host of Red Scare. There you go. That's what she'd be doing nowadays. She would get so oh, viciously man. canceled for racism. She'd be hanging out with Polya. She would. She'd be yeah. an Art of yeah. uh, Darkness stan. I think. Yeah. Maybe. So, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, in any case, uh, that you really gave a, a comprehensive picture of her. I'm going to roll this around in my brain for a while. Uh, yeah. Geo, thank you so much for coming on. It sounds like we're going to have to do if it's not next year at some point we're gonna have to do monk this is this is your favorite uh, your favorite artist and you're a painter so that could be very cool yeah yeah Yeah. and thanks so much thanks so much for coming on man we really really yeah this has been great it's been been on this for a while so all right and we're gonna do some more time here shortly uh we're gonna come back and in the meantime uh we're we're gonna try not to betray any of our lovers (laughs) (laughs) i'm a true cell so it's very easy uh yes well (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks again all right all right we'll see you in a few minutes Bye bye bye